Welcome, everybody, and we're going to get right to it tonight. And for whatever reason, we've been delving a lot into Revelation around here, not only in our Sabbath group, the Diaspora of Yasharel, but also in the Wednesday night discussions we've been, that has been hosted here by Ronit and Rob and Desmond, as they've been going through the the literature on you know 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. And tonight I'll be doing something of the same. And it's kind of ironic because I had stated, you know, some months ago, and I've said this before, that I did not want to get into Revelation because it is one of those books where, you know, especially when we're bringing it into contemporary times where everyone has these unique interpretations for it and, you know, they've discovered the meaning behind all this stuff and how it's going to play out over the next, you know, seven to 10 years or, you know, we're already in it or whatever. Tonight, though, it's as you guys have seen, I've been really struggling through this, uh, the book of Revelation. But, right, guys, when you guys come in, please uh, just remember to turn off your microphones. Anyways, I got him. Anyway, where where was I? Okay, so let's just go ahead and open this up. We'll get right into it. And I'm hoping to have a really good discussion time afterwards because this can break into a lot of different um, uh, thoughts, um, especially even contemporary today. For the record, guys, I just want to go out there and say that some of the things we're going to see tonight that I believe was fulfilled in the years 66 to 70 AD, really the first century as a whole, uh, we are perhaps seeing those same kind of ideas played out. And that is because it is a cult base. And they basically, when they run things from a script perspective, when the world is a stage and they're putting on a performance for us, they repeat the same patterns over and over and over and over. And you can see it all throughout history. So with that, let's go ahead and open it up. This is called The Beast of Rome Finally Explains. Kind of a lame title, but you know, it is what it is. And as you can see, I published it three separate times this week because I kept like coming up with new material and I just kept pushing it out. I'm like, Hey, this is really good. So what you see right here is, is, you know, three different publications so far this week, and then there'll be more. I'll probably add to this later. Starting out, we see the seven Kings of Rome. The simplest explanation is usually the best one. That's according to Occam's razor, which by the way, very much applies to identifying the beast in revelation chapter 13 and also Revelation 17. It had seven heads, you know. Rome was a city of seven hills, but it also had seven kings originally. A little later down the turnpike, those seven kings would reemerge as the Caesars. Look, you can keep accusing me of being a filthy, stinking preterist, which, amazingly, I've (laughs) sided with a lot of their positions, but the fact of the matter is, claiming Revelation as something unfulfilled is not only wishful thinking, also completely misses the New Testament's peripheral vision. Everybody keeps looking around for the arrival of the beast, and indeed there are many beasts throughout his story, including our own time period. But the answer has been staring us in the face all along. The beast was a contemporary of Revelation's author. Go ahead and see what I mean. Give it a read. This comes from Revelation chapter 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. It's as I've always said, the beast of Revelation chapter 13 was a sea monster, 
even if you disagree with the part about the seven kings, which is often the case, we might as well find common ground with the prophets, no? Seems like a good idea, all things considered. For the prophets, you see, employed sea monsters to symbolize the oppressive Goyim empires surrounding them. I could list several instances, but Daniel chapter 7 seems like the most obvious choice. So this comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Daniel had a dream and vision of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. Skipping ahead, uh, verse 17 of the same chapter. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. And there you have it. The four beasts are government entities, obviously. But perhaps more importantly, they are embodied by the Ruach of four separate kings. Returning now to the beast of Revelation 13 and my claim that Rome had begun under the dictate of seven kings, we read. And so this is what uh, a little clipping here from the Wikipedia. The king of Rome was the chief magistrate of the Roman kingdom. According to legend, the first king of Rome was Romulus, who founded the city in 753 BC upon the Palatine Hill. Seven legendary kings are said to have ruled Rome until 509 BC, when the last king was overthrown. These kings ruled for an average of 35 years. You see, even the Wikipedia agrees. There were seven kings in all, starting with Romulus, never an eighth. We even know um, each of Romulus's successors. And it's not like I haphazardly stumbled upon this discovery by counting all seven of them up on my fingers, either. No, the number seven is often regurgitated by our controllers. The part where they call it a legend is simply their way of passing notes in class. They're apparently too professional to believe in fairy tales, but don't seem too keen on proving it untrue, either. Apparently, and despite the number of ancients who claimed a seven-king succession, one library or another burned to the ground, thereby destroying any and all official documentation. Oh dear. Has anybody checked in the Vatican? If only I had a library card. Well, here are their names anyways. Let's see if I can zoom in on this and actually read this, because I made this really small. So this, of course, comes from Wikipedia, too. They, they list them for us. You see Romulus, Numa, Pompilus or Numa Pompus, uh, Tullus, Hostilus, Incus, Martius, Lucius, uh, Prusius, <laughs> Servius, Tullius, and another Lucius, uh, Superbus. That's kind of fun. He's got super in his name. So Romulus, Numa, uh, Pompulus, Tullus, Hostilus, Incus, Martius, Lucius, Tarquin... I'm butchering these names. Tarquinius, uh, Prusius, Servius, Tullius, and Lucius, whatever, Superbus. I counted exactly seven. How many did you count? I knew it, seven. But what if an eighth? There is no eighth. After the seventh, the Edomite tyrants were expelled, and Rome became a republic. And no, that wasn't a slip-up. I wasn't trying to be clever either. Assuming you already read 1948, the year Gog conquered Israel, which, of course, we went over about a month ago, then you'll recognize the name Romulus. 
Demonstrating his Edomite connection, as well as the other six kings, would only be a review. That's a theme which won't be repeated here. What I neglected to mention is that the twins, Romulus and Remus, were the result of a Vestal virgin being raped by Mars. And that's a theme we're going to uh, get into a little bit later tonight as well. I only bring it uh, bring his adoption by the Edomites up because Esau, the father of Edom, wanted to murder his twin brother, Yaakov. Let's not forget how the cities of Cain were founded upon the murder of Havel. There's a familiar theme at play here, and it's biblical. What theme is that? I'm glad you asked. The Wikipedia outlines it for us, so follow along. After arriving back in the area of the Seven Hills, this is uh, Romulus uh, and Remus, they disagreed about the hill upon which to build. Romulus preferred the Palatine Hill above the Lupercal. Remus preferred the Aventine Hill. When they could not resolve the dispute, they agreed to seek the gods' approval through a contest of um, augury. Remus first saw six auspicious birds, but soon afterward, Romulus saw twelve and claimed to have one divine approval. The new dispute furthered the contention between them. In the aftermath, Remus was killed either by Romulus or by one of his supporters. Romulus then went on to found the city of Rome, its institutions, government, military, and religious traditions. He reigned for many years as its first king. Romulus murdered Remus. The reason being is that Romulus preferred the Palatine Hill above the, the uh, Lupercal for Rome's foundation, whereas Remus preferred the Aventine Hill. Romulus couldn't have that. The Lupercal was the cult center for the worship of Pan. And again, if you read 1948, then you'll know Pan is none other than Ham. Ham was one of Noah's three sons. But unlike Shem and, and Japheth, who were from the line of Seth, Ham was a Cain. No time to explain that now. The mother of Romulus and Remus was someone named Rhea Silvia. Not sure which of Noah's sons she's descended from. If I had to guess, Ham, seeing as how Pan Ham traveled across Europe usurping thrones and planting his children's bum in them. Meanwhile, it's quite apparent that they are the result of another Watcher incursion through, of course, the Rape of Mars. That's where the story of Rome begins. Quite dramatic, I know. If I were to take the time to dissect each of Rome's seven kings, I imagine many connections might be made to the Caesars. For example, Servius Tullius was the sixth king of Rome, and he was murdered. Take a mental note of that. It was his murder at the hands of his successor, Lucius uh, Tarquinius Superbus, which helped to bring about the end of the seven-headed beast, at least for now. What we have in Revelation is a symbolic, if not spiritual return, perhaps quite a literal one, of the seven founding kings. The seven-headed beast is Rome's return to autocracy. In 44 BC, the beast arose from the sea when Julius Caesar declared himself emperor for life. Part 2. The Seven Caesars of Rome The, the seven heads of the beast are seven hills, but also seven kings. That's what Yochanan assures us in chapter 17 of Revelation. No, not the original seven kings of Rome, mind you. There is probably something to be said about the ruachs of those kings as embodied by the beast. But we're moving on to the Caesars because the seven heads were contemporaries of Yochanan. Well, most of them. You probably don't believe me. See for yourself then. The state 
is Caesar, according to Ovid. Short but sweet. The state is Caesar. Difficult to read that in any other light, even when rearranging the words. For the record, Ovid was a Roman poet, born in 43 BC, died in 18 AD. Hugely influential in propagandizing, or propag... (laughs) I can't say it. Propagandizing the divinity of the Caesars. Excommunicated by Caesar Augustus, ironically. His quote is directly to the point, though, just as I like just as I like it, and you probably still don't believe me very well then sometimes I must play this thing from all angles, and so, with my back against the wall, I'm pressed to source nearly everyone's favorite writer, Shaul writes in Colossians one eighteen, and he is the head of the body, the called out assembly, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things that in all things he might have preeminence. The he spoken about here is Messiah. You probably knew that already, but it's best not to assume. And as you can clearly see, Ovid's sentiments are here presented. Like Caesar in the state, so too is Messiah the head of a government. The called out assembly makes up his body. Crisis resolved. Getting back to the seven-headed beast of Revelation then. We read in chapter 17, verses 9 through 10 of Revelation, And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. See, you can't claim all seven kings are still to rise in the world we inhabit today. According to Yochanan's own words, five had already fallen. At the time he sat down to dictate Yahusha's epistle to the seven churches, one still was. Simple math informs us that the sixth king was already ruling by then. If I were to pen a letter today telling you about the 45 heads of the beast who were, and the 46th which is, the educated reader would know I was referring to President Joe Biden. Likewise, everybody would have known the man's identity then as well, Nero. That's who. Nero's reign lasted from 54 through 68 AD, telling us that Revelation was written sometime during those years. Notice, thou, notice though how there was still another to come. Yochanan is saying, however bad you think it is now, wait until the next guy comes along, because that's when the laurel wreath really hits the fan. Yochanan's attention seems to be thrust upon Caesar Nero Caesar Vespasian, and Caesar Titus, all of which add up to 666, by the way. You will tell me that's not possible, as the tally adds adds up to eight kings rather than seven. I haven't gotten there yet. Continuing. Uh, This is still chapter 17, verses, uh, this is uh, verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. But how can there be eight kings if each head is a king and there are only seven of them? Riddles in the dark. I know the answer to this one. Unraveling everything, however, is a process, and I'm not ready to give it away quite yet. You will have to wait a little longer. For now, amuse me. The identities of number six, seven, and eight are Nero, Vespasian, and Titus. Just go with it and then write me a letter of complaint afterwards. Anyways, here is every Caesar in order, starting with Julius Caesar and then ending with Titus. As you can see there, Julius ruled from 46 to 44 BC. 
not uh, not a long reign as Caesar, and he was off by um, everybody's favorite Brutus. Augustus, 31 to 14. Uh, of course, Yahushua was born under him. Tiberius from 14 to 37. Caligula, uh, Caligula from 37 to 41. Uh, nobody seems to know about that guy too much. Claudius from 41 to 54. Nero from 54 to 68. Uh, Galba from 68 to 69, Otho from January through April of 69, um, and then Olius Vitilius from July to December 69 AD, Vespasian 69 to 79, and Titus from 79 to 81. Immediately, you will count 11 names written here and not 8. Numbering them from 1 to 11 was not a slip-up on my part. I crossed out numbers 7 through 9 on the list because they were never intended to be counted as heads on Yochanan's beast. You will tell me close but no cigar, also, that I'm cheating. Well, I, I don't see it that way. And before we're through, I hope to present my logic when crossing out their names. Now that I think about it, we might as well delve into a proper explanation now. It will take switching topics, though. So, here we go. Part, I think we're on part three, the seven-headed Leviathan. Leviathan. The identity of the beast being described in Revelation chapter 13 and 17 is Leviathan. Bet you didn't see that coming. It's true, though, all of it. I'm telling you this now because the sudden emergence of an eighth head of the beast needs explanation. Leviathan answers to no one and yet explains everything. For Leviathan is a sea monster with seven heads, you see not eight per se, though eight is certainly not without the realm of possibilities. You will tell me the Bible never once says he has seven or eight heads. This is true. He does have more than one, though. See for yourself. So in Psalms 74, 14, it says, you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. It says heads, plural. Can't say it's only one now. Therefore, every illustration we've ever seen of Leviathan sporting one head is wrong. The ancient Greeks and the Romans had a multi-headed serpent monster named Hydra to contend with. The oldest extant narrative depicting Hydra appears in Hesiod's Theogony, and its earliest depiction can be found on a pair of bronze fibulae dating back to the whereabouts of 700 BC, sporting six heads which is kind of interesting when you think about it. In the 600s, Alcius gave it an upgrade to nine heads, which is just kind of an inverted six, I guess, in a way. Not the same creature as Leviathan, you say, or close but no cigar, as the Cubans say. Know what creature is, though? The creature from the ancient Canaanite drama, the Baal Cycle, is Leviathan. And I quote, so you, I put two translations of the same thing here. So the one on the right uh, the one on the left says, when you killed Lighten, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisty serpent, the potent uh, potentate with seven heads, the heavens grew hot, they withered. And then we see, have you forgotten, Baal, that I can surely transfix you for all that you smote Leviathan, the slippery serpent, and made an end of the wriggling serpent, the tyrant with seven heads? The heavens will burn up and droop helpless, for I myself will crush you in pieces. I will eat you. Seven heads, not six or eight, but seven. Sure, the creature's name is Lighten rather than Leviathan in one translation, but to erase any doubts, we read Leviathan in another. And then look at what else we read. 
So if you guys were here like two or three weeks ago, you'll recall this discussion we had on the book of Lemek of Cain, which says, And Yuval took Lemek to the edge of the sea, and they saw Leviathan coming up out of the sea, having ten horns upon its head. Well, 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 who has ten horns now? Leviathan does. Starting to sound a lot more like the beast from Revelation, don't it? At first you had your reservations. It's okay if the glove fits. Skipping ahead. Leviathan with one head, so mighty that seven uh, dot 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 are seen as one. Leviathan the mighty with ten mighty horns on his mighty head. The Leviathan has ten horns, but also, if I'm reading that right, it has seven heads, which are seen as one. Hmm. Sounds kind of esoteric. Several chapters later in the book, Tubal Cain cuts off the head of Leviathan and then hangs it from the city of Enoch, which we are told was ruled by fallen angels. I'm thinking the decapitated head is only the exoteric explanation of things, seeing as how his father Lemek was a master Mahon, and Leviathan furthermore served him, killing anyone at the clap of his hands. We might read this as Tubal Cain toppling the alchemical wizardry of his old man. Clearly, Leviathan did not die. He may have appeared to die with the severed head and all, but as we've already read, Leviathan only appeared to have one head. Certainly, to the uninitiated or profane, he would have seemed as so. If anything, Leviathan would have grown two more heads in the stump where Tubal-Cain slayed him. That goes along with the entire theme of the book, by the way. Hasatan's kingdom will not be toppled, not even by the coming surge of flood water. No, not until Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, tosses the Satan and his confederacy of divine beings into the lake of fire. Next section, skipping ahead, death and rebirth. Getting back to the part where I said Caesar's Gaba, Otho, and Vitellius should not be numbered upon the heads of the beast. Well, they weren't part of the Caesar family line either. All three came to prominence following Nero's supposed suicide in 68, and then ruled for a short while in 69, amongst the confusion. That was the year which has come to be known as the year of the four Caesars. You see, news of Nero's death coincided with the outbreak of civil war, the first since Mark Antony's death in 30 BC. Another way of saying this is that Nero was the last ruling member of the Caesar dynasty, and the beast died with him. The rest of the world watched it happen in real time. Take a mental note of that. It would not rise from the dead again until the Flavian dynasty. Who was the fourth Caesar to book in the year? Vespasian, of course. And Vespasian, as you will know by now, was a Flavian. It happened like this. Nero was declared an enemy of the state. After committing suicide, Galba then entered the city and was promptly declared emperor. It wouldn't last. During a coup d'etat, Galba was often the street by the um, Praetorian Guard. FYI, the Praetorian Guard was Caesar's intel, telling us that his assassination was a psyop, probably scripted. Otho only lasted three months and then took a dagger to his own heart. Sure. We are told Otho committed the deed to steer his empire away from another civil war, thereby laying the red carpet out for his Flavian successor. But I have little reason to believe any of these events were organic. It's all psychodrama. Performance witchcraft intended to further mold humanity into a certain image. The ceremony involved everyone's favorite phoenix. Death and rebirth and 
all that. The entire world was watching, and what they saw were Vespasian and Titus simultaneously bringing about order to the Roman Empire. With their victorious arrival in Rome the following year, it can truly be said that the beast rose from the dead. Two new heads grew from the severed neck of the seven-headed beast, making eight in all. Who was the eighth? Vespasian's other son, Domitian. Unless I forget, Vespasian and Titus were both declared Caesar at the same time, even sharing the same Roman cognomen, Titus Flavius Vespasian. Uh, I can't do these Latin names, guys. Vespasianus. I need to like do it with my with my um, with my you know my fingers in there. Flavius Titus. All right, the Antichrist. I need to I need to like uh, pronounce the names like I'm ordering pasta. Hold on for a quick little coffee drink. The Antichrist. Josephus was a Flavian. Remember that the next time you go flaunting his quotes about. He wasn't simply a Roman whore. No, Josephus was very much a part of the beast which Yochanan warned us about. Propaganda of the beast, for sure. But that's not even the whole of it. Very few seem to notice nor care to appreciate that Josephus named Caesar Vespasian as the Jewish Messiah. Quoting directly from Josephus. But what more than all else incited them to the war was an ambiguous oracle, likewise found in their sacred scriptures. To the effect, and he's talking about the Jews here, the Yahudim, their scriptures, to the effect that at that time, one from their country would become ruler of the world. This they understood to mean someone of their own race, and many of their wise men went astray in their interpretation of it. The oracle, however, in reality signified the sovereignty of Vespasian, who was proclaimed emperor on Jewish soil. So this comes from Josephus, War of the Jews, uh, book 6, I think chapter 5, uh, 4, I think, but 654. He said it. He actually said it. Read that quote again if need be. It couldn't be made any clearer. Come to think of it, it's one of the most jacked up and emotionally abusive quotes I've ever come across. When stating the Yahudim were in error to believe the Messiah would arise from their own people, Josephus simultaneously claims Messiah was the very person who destroyed Yerushalayim and the temple in naming Caesar Vespasian as their man. And again, lest you forget, his name adds up to 666. Josephus outed Antichrist. What makes Josephus's line even more uh, (laughs) malapidated is the oracle whom he chooses as his own, Balaam. He was quoting from the prophecy of Balaam. If you need a refresher, Balaam was the guy with the talking donkey. But first and foremost, he was a diviner hired by Balak, king of Moab, to place a malediction on the people of Yashorel when they were camped on the plains of Moab. In Balaam's own words, he says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Yaakov, and a scepter shall rise out of Yashorel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. And Edom shall be a possession. Um, Seir, um, Sair, I believe, also shall be a possession for his enemies. 
and Yasharel shall do valiantly. Out of Yaakov shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remains of the city. Numbers 24, 17 through 19. It's okay, you can say it. That's jacked up. Comparing Vespasian's destruction of Jerusalem to the prophecy of Balaam, that is. Psychotic even, or as we'd say in the 90s, scandalous. If you're an ex-military man, you might even call it for what it is and claim FUBAR as the culprit. Here at the Unexpected Cosmology, we're scholars among heathen, and I myself am a family man, but sometimes gentlemen lack the words. But there you have it. You were seeking an antichrist, and now you have one. The destruction of Yerushalayim wasn't exactly incidental either. The Flavian victory in Yehuda not only solidified the right to rule, to the eyes of the Roman populace, it qualified their godhead. Taken as a whole, Revelation 13 includes their triumphal entry into Rome immediately after the fall of Yerushalayim in 70 AD. Their arrival was greeted with overwhelming praise. The civil war had been ended, but so had the war in Yasharel. Both threatened to collapse the empire, but no longer. They arrived as father and son. More specifically, though, God and son of God. I know, I know. Before Flavian's uh, before the Flavians destroyed Jerusalem, Caesar worship. Let me back that up. Caesar worship had already become a pastime. That's what you're planning to tell me. Julius, Augustus, and Claudius, however, were posthumously recognized as gods for the most part. Contrarily, the aura of divinity which Vespasian surrounded himself with was part of his public relations regime. Miraculous healings were among them. There are three ancient scholars who attest to Vespasian's healing abilities. Cassius Dio uh, came along a hundred years later or so, according to official history. Tacitus and uh, Suetonius, however, were contemporaries of the emperor. They both give similar accounts, but for sake of uh, paper, because I love trees so, I will only quote from one of them. This is what Tacitus has to say on the matter. In the months during which Vespasian was waiting at Alexandria for the periodical return of the summer gales and settled weather at sea, many wonders occurred which seemed to point him out as the object of the favor of heaven and of the partiality of the gods. One of the common people of Alexandria, well known for his blindness, threw himself at the emperor's knees and implored him with groans to heal his infirmity. This he did by the advice of the god Serapis, whom this nation, devoted as it is to many superstitions, worships more than any other divinity. He begged Vespasian that he would uh, uh, deign to moisten his cheeks and eyeballs with his spittle. Another with a diseased hand, at the council of the same god, prayed that the limb might uh, feed the prince of a Caesar's foot. At first, Vespasian ridiculed and repulsed them. They persisted, and he, though on the one hand he feared the scandal of a fruitless attempt, yet on the other, was induced by the entreaties of the men and by the language of his flatterers to hope for success. At last, he ordered that the opinion of physicians should be taken as to whether such blindness and infirmity were within the reach of human skill. They, they discussed the matter from different points of view. In the one case, they said, the faculty of sight was not wholly destroyed and might return. If the obstacles were removed, 
In the other case, the limb, which had fallen into a diseased condition, might be restored. If a healing influence were applied, such, perhaps, might be the pleasure of the gods, and the emperor might be chosen to be the minister of the divine will. At any rate, all the glory of a successful remedy would be Caesar's, while the ridicule of failure would fall on the sufferers. And so, Vespasian, supposing that all things were possible to his good fortune, and that nothing was any longer past belief, with a joyful countenance amid the intense expectation of the multitude of bystanders, accomplished what was required. The hand was instantly, instantly restored to its use, and the light of day again shone upon the blind. Persons actually present attest both facts, even now when nothing is to be gained by falsehood. Tacitus Histories 481. What you just read transpired in the weeks before Vespasian and Titus returned to Rome from Yerushalayim, after destroying it, that is. The route they took was through Alexandria, which just so happens to be where the miracle occurred. If you wanted to be praised as a god in the Hellenized world, then why not follow the, in the footsteps of Mark Antony and Cleopatra? Gods were practically made there in Alexandria. Serapis, by the way, was pushed forward as a deity by Ptolemy I. The Ptolemies may have been pharaohs, but they were Greek rather than Egyptian, making them obvious puppet rulers of Rome, of which Cleopatra was the last. The inclusion of Serapis in this story reeks of a Roman typewriter. Quick review. Vespasian spit into the eyes of a blind man and then stepped on a withered hand, instantly curing both. Or in Tacitus's words, the hand was instantly restored to its use and the light of day again shone upon the blind. Obviously, a PR stunt. You may have disagreed when I insisted the assassination of Galba at the hands of the Intel Department was a hoax intended for psychodramatic purposes. Nowadays, People from the Intel Department rally crowds or play corpses all the time, and few care to listen when I let them in on that fact. But with Vespasian, come on, it's so obvious. The blind and the diseased man were spooks. I cross out probably because they were. I sat here for the last five minutes debating whether I should even use the word probably. It's been crossed out, as you can tell. That's my way of letting you know those five minutes were a total waste of my time. If Vespasian played it off as though uncertain, it's because he couldn't be too obvious. Sorry, sorry, still obvious though. All right, next section, Son of a Serpent. We might as well chalk this up to another Serpent Seed article, because really, when it came to Caesar Augustus's conception, that's what we're dealing with. Only the world knew him then as Octavian. He had no father, you know. Just ask his mother. Ask anyone else why this is, and they'll probably just explain it away as Roman propaganda. Assuming, however, that this isn't your first rodeo either, then you already know better. Sometimes spooks can pass notes in class right out in the open, rather than underneath the desk, knowing that nobody will believe them, and this is one of those occasions. Gaius uh, Suetonius Tranquillus was a Roman historian. Most simply call him Suetonius. They tell us he was born in 69 AD, dying sometime after 122. Well, here's what he wrote. Augustus's mother, Attia, with certain married women, friends, once attended a solemn midnight service at the Temple of Apollo, where she had her litter set down. 
and presently fell asleep as the others also did. Suddenly, a serpent glided up, entered her, and then gliding away again. On awakening, she purified herself as if after intimacy with her husband. An irremovable colored mark in the shape of a serpent, which then appeared on her body, made her ashamed to visit the public baths anymore. And the birth of Augustus nine months later suggested a divine paternity. I guess if we're being technical, Augustus did have a father. He wasn't a human one, though. Rather than giving me the birds and the bees talk, explaining the impossibility of a snake crawling up into a woman's wahoo and impregnating, uh, impregnating her. It's funny how I, like, I can't pronounce anything with like more than three syllables. It's awful. Try to move beyond the exoteric level. The ancient worldview represented snakes with magical powers, specifically related to fertility. Among other healing qualities, the snake was an emblem of rebirth. Unless we forget everybody's favorite spook, Plato gave us the image of a snake eating its own tail, the Ouroboros. Atia certainly wouldn't be the first woman to be impregnated by a serpent. Let's get the most obvious out of the way. Hava's conception of Cain. Like I said, not my first rodeo. Elsewhere, Olympias was the mother of Alexander the Great, and she was raped by Zeus, who, like Octavius's mystery father, masqueraded as a snake. Turns out, Zeus was a serial rapist. He not only raped Europa when appearing to her as a bull, the lustful god took on dozens of other forms to rape Mediterranean women and sire divine children with them. In order to rape Callisto, Zeus even assumed Apollo's form. Octavius was just one resulting from a long line of rape victims. There is a notable connection here, however, in that Octavius is the second head of Yochanan's seven-headed animal, whereas Alexander was the he-goat with the little horn in Daniel's vision. And in both instances, they're reported, in the very least, to be the sons of gods. All right, next section is called Nero Redivivus. Redivivus. I have to keep saying that over and over again. Nero Redivivus. And if you need caught up, we're on page 23. The overarching theme in all of this is death and rebirth, of which Nero holds the crutch. I'm willing to bet the entire suicide story was a hoax. It smells of the usual fish, but mostly psychodrama. Kind of like Mark Antony and Cleopatra's double suicide, which is of the... Which is of further interest here because Mark Antony was both Nero's great grandfather on his father's side and great great grandfather on his mother's. You can probably tell that I'm itching to dig into these Intel psyops, perhaps another time. While I have your attention though, Mark Antony was declared Bacchus incarnate. So many gods among men, most of whom are contrasted with the death and rebirth of Yahusha Hamashiach. It's difficult keeping track of them all. Hopefully you haven't already forgotten Nero's placeholder as the sixth head of the beast and that his deadly wound was healed with the coming of Vespasian. There's hardly a better contender for the man of lawlessness than Nero. His killing spree is somewhat legendary. Nero is believed to have had a part in killing his adopted father Claudius. He then went on to murder his stepbrother Britannicus. Sounds like a dictionary. With these two out of the way, his place on the throne was secured. 
But that was only the beginning of his murderous appetite. Nero murdered nearly everyone close to him, including his own mother, Agrippina the Younger, his aunts, his first wife, Octavia, and allegedly his second wife, Papia Sabina, who was pregnant at the time. After ordering the exile and murder of Faustus Sulla, Nero then proposed to his widow, Claudia Antonia. When she refused his offer, he had her charged with an attempt of rebellion and executed. There are plenty of other names which can be included here, as nearly every other member of his family in the Caesar dynasty, including relatives by marriage, were offed by Nero. How much of this is Roman propaganda or simply part of an elaborate intel psyop is a question I've been asking. There's no way to tell, really, as I wasn't there. But knowing what I do now of how contemporary events unfold, the pass of the baton from Nero to Vespasian comes across as a scripted ceremony. Performance witchcraft. For all I know, Caesar's family was carted off to a secure location one by one. Yes, the world was still a stage then, and Rome was certainly sophisticated enough to pull it off. You shall get a further glimpse into what I'm insinuating in just a moment. For certain, Caesar's depravity extended to his sexual nature. In 67 AD, just one year before suicide, Nero married the young boy Sporus, but not before he first had him castrated. Sporus then appeared in public as his wife, wearing the regalia that was customary for Roman empresses. At the time, it was noted that Sporus had an uncanny resemblance to his second wife, Papia Sabina. Following Nero's suicide, Sporus became involved with Otho. If you recall, Otho was the second of four emperors who followed in Nero's wake in 69 AD. Well, Otho had also been married to Papia. Um, okay, let me repeat that. Otho had also been married to Papia until Nero forced their divorce. After Otho's three-month reign, ending, of course, in suicide, Vitellius intended to cast Sporus in the starring role of Persephone for a public performance of The Rape of Persephone, a staple of the Illusionian Mysteries. And actually, if you, if you guys study the Illusionian Mysteries and The Rape of Persephone, like, it explains a lot of the occult. It's also a Walt Disney cartoon, too, to check out. Apparently, the play was intended to be a very real reenactment. Sporus, however, committed suicide before the show could open. Shortly after the burning of Rome, of which Nero was said to play the lyre, the emperor built a pleasure palace overlaid with gold, ivory, and mother of pearl. Visitors were greeted by a 120-foot statue of himself. Once inside, its all-you-can-eat buffet court would put Las Vegas to shame. It even included panels in the ceiling that would rain flower petals and perfume upon his guests as they undressed each other. Tacitus wrote of one such orgy, which went on for days. It culminated in another of Nero's marriages to a freedman named Pythagoras. Not the Pythagoras of old uh, who measured the breadth of the earth. I'm assuming. (laughs) Uh, if we get all our history mixed up. Whereas Pythagoras played the role of his husband with Nero filling in for his bride. So Nero is pretending to be the woman here in this marriage. Their ceremony was a public one, and on the night of their wedding, Nero loudly imitated the moans of a virgin being deflowered. There is even a game reportedly invented by Nero in which he would dress in animal skins 
and attacked the genitals of men and women whom he had bound to stakes. He also ordered a locusta, a person described to us as a female assassin, which is kind of interesting, to be publicly raped by a specially trained giraffe before being torn apart by wild animals. I have no idea how he was able to have a giraffe rape a female assassin, but that's what we read. And that's the other thing. The wild animals, the public killings. Nero's lust for blood included lighting followers of Messiah on crosses or feeding them to his beast. One notable kill included Kepha, who was reportedly hung upside down on a cross in the circus. The fire which burned Rome in 64 AD, by the way, the reported year of Kepha's death, started from the circus. Even beyond the grounds of his circus, though, Nero was said to wander the streets and taverns at night, seeking men to assault. If anyone offered resistance, they were off by Nero's guards and their bodies disposed of in the sewer. Other bizarre accounts include Nero breaking into shops so that he could sell those stolen goods at his palace. I guess Nero just really wanted to open his own store and he um, helped himself to the merchandise he wanted to sell. Nero may have been the man of lawlessness, and he most certainly was, but let's not lose sight of the fact that his life was based around theater. Nero was an actor, and Rome was a stage. I mean, he did call it the circus, after all. Performance witchcraft is a thing, you know. Actually, it's a discipline. And it goes all the way back to Babylon. Everything you've just read regarding Nero's debauchery was intended for public uh, consumption. The Caesar family murders, the gender bending, the sexual perversion, the endless circus entertainment, the hunt, the burning of Rome. Intel performs the same feats today. If Nero gave the old psychodrama a twist to the nipple, it's likely because the death and rebirth ceremony was intended all along. Yes, there were real victims, but there were also fake victims. Even the Wikipedia is pressed to address history's insistence that Nero was one of the later. Follow along. Now, I cannot, (laughs) I can't read that. Luckily, I did paste this below. So it it says here, (laughs) were you able to read that? I wasn't. You'd either need the vision of a bald eagle or a pair of binoculars to make out those words. I'll copy and paste the first paragraph for your convenience. It reads, The Nero uh, Redivivus legend was a belief popular during the last part of the first century that the Roman Emperor Nero would return after his death in 68 AD. The legend was a common belief as late as the 5th century. The belief was either the result or cause of several pretenders who posed as Nero leading rebellions. Of all the murders and suicides, including Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra, why would Nero's fare any different? It shouldn't. I've pointed out time and again in my papers how the official narrative attempts to pass everything off as organic, when in fact, the intel department is the one drawing up the blueprints for the folk movement. The second paragraph, which you were unlikely capable of reading, has the Sibylline oracles claiming Nero escaped to Parthia. Who was going about alerting the public consciousness to the fact that Nero's suicide was a hoax? First century Roman truthers? No, spooks were. 
And should you tell me the same logic applies to Christianity, Christianity, let me be the first to say it most certainly does. Intel has their dirty little paws in everything. Christianity is run by gatekeepers, misinformation agents, and other spooks. You either believe scripture to be truth or you don't. If you do, then you'll know that Hasatan has his intel. But so does Yahuwah. There are agents working both sides. This is what Yahusha meant when he said his wheat would have to remain amongst the terrors until the harvest. Really, how do you pass several pretenders off as Nero? Are thousands of people really that stupid? Wait, don't answer that question. The, the claim, though, is that Nero imposters were raising armies intended to incite rebellion. Excuse me while I LOL myself to sleep. Let's keep reading anyways. In this section here about Nero imposters, it says there were at least three Nero impersonators who emerged leading rebellions. The first appeared as little as one year after Nero's death in 69. Two more appeared during the reigns of brothers Titus and Domitian. Really? Were the Flavians bored or something? In other news, Rome made Nero an enemy of the state. See how they play all sides? The only gullible people are those who believe someone is capable of fooling masses of Romans into thinking he is Nero all on his own. I mean, I might as well go around trying to convince people I'm John F. Kennedy Jr. Who would believe me? Nobody. Again, if Nero's sightings were the immediate norm, and these so-called Nero impersonators were raising armies, then the most obvious deduction is that Intel was behind it, a.k.a. the Flavians. I've probably said this over a hundred times already. It's all psychodrama. All right, the next section, the Ten Horns. Hopefully you guys are still tracking with me. Figuring out the identity of the Ten Horns wasn't easy. I did it, though. Scratch that. Somebody else figured it out for me. I still had to do the, the back-breaking work of pulling out a shovel, though. Most people will never even read this paper. So... If you've dug this far, then you're one of the few. The truth is in plain sight, and once you see it, you wonder how something could go unnoticed for so long. Well, here it goes. The Ten Horns are named for us by Josephus. Are you really surprised, though? First, this is what Yochanan has to say regarding the Ten Horns. And this comes from Revelation chapter 17 again, verses 12 through 14. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Yahuwah Adonai and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. At the time when Yochanan sat down to write Revelation, the, tink, the ten kings hadn't received their kingdom yet. They would for one hour, though. And seeing as how Yochanan was scribbling his visions down onto parchment during the reign of the sixth head, Nero, we can easily deduce that they would appear upon the earth very soon. And as, as I was earlier mentioning, Josephus tells us. Blink and you'll miss it, though. I mean, if you weren't specifically seeking for the identity of these kings in his writings, then you'd likely comb right over them. But here they are. Clear as your hand before your eyes in the daylight. Follow along. Uh, this is kind of a long section, but I'll read it anyways. 
But as to those who had pursued after Cestius, when they were returned back to Jerusalem, they overbore some of those that favored the Romans by violence, and some of them persuaded by entreaties to join with them, and got together in great numbers in the temple, and appointed a great many generals for the war. Josephus also, the son of Gorion, and Ananus, the high priest, were chosen as governors of all affairs within the city, and with a particular charge to repair the walls of the city. For they did not ordain Eliezer, the son of Simon, to that office, although he had gotten into his possession the prey that had taken from the Romans, and the money they had taken from Cestius, together with a great part of the public treasures, because they saw he was of a tyrannical temper, and that his followers were in their behavior like guards about him. However, the, the want they were in of Eliezer's money, and the subtle tricks used by him, brought also about that the people were uh, circumvented and submitted themselves to his authority in all public affairs. They also chose other generals for, um, for Edom. Uh, Jesus, the son of Saphias, or we could say Yeshua, one of the high priests, and Eliezer, the son of Ananias, the high priest. They also enjoined Niger, or maybe, uh, yeah, I'll just say Niger, uh, the then governor of um, Edom who was of a family that belonged to Perea, beyond Jordan, and was thence called the Perite, that he should be obedient to those forenamed commanders. Nor did they neglect the care of other parts of the country. But Yosef, the son of Simon, was sent as general to Jericho, as was Manasseh to Perea, and Yochanan, the, the Eskew, to the Toparchy of Thama, Lydia was also added to his portion in Joppa and Emmaus. Um, yeah, Emmaus. But Yochanan, the son of Matthias, so there's two Yochanans here, was made governor of the Toparchies of, um, I don't know, was that Gothnitica and so on, as was Josephus, the son of Matthias, of both of the Galilees. And this Josephus right here is the same one writing. Gabala also, which was the strongest city in those parts, was put under his command. Did you count them up on your fingers? I did. There's exactly 10. Two of them were marked in red. The first was Ananus. The reason I considered his importance is because Josephus identified him as the high priest. I checked. His importance should not be undermined, and here's why. The Wikipedia tells us it was Ananus ben Ananus who ordered the execution by stoning of Yaakov. He was one of the 10 kings appointed for an hour but he was also directly responsible for murdering the brother of Yahusha HaMashiach. Yes, murder. Even the citizens of Jerusalem thought so, as his execution was illegal. Apparently, Ananus bar Ananus was removed from his position of high priest for the execution of Yaakov, which is actually fascinating when you think about it. King Herod Agrippa II is personally responsible for scooting his caboose from office. Talk about calling the kettle black. Because he, of course, he killed Yochanan, uh, and who replaced him? Somebody named Yahusha ben Damius. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think it's like rain on your wedding day? And by the way, I, I I'm putting out there as a contender. I was talking to Rob about this earlier this week that I'm going to put a, a contender for one of the two witnesses as Yaakov. Well, here's a list of the ten generals in the territories they were uh, over. They were to oversee in preparation for war with Rome. 
so we read them off here. Just I, I won't go over where they're uh, where they were ruling as generals, but you can see Joseph, the son of Gorion, Ananus, the high priest, Jesus, the son of Sapphias, uh, Eliezer, the son of Ananias, uh, Niger, the then governor of Edom, Joseph, the son of S Simon, Manasseh, Yochanan, another Yochanan, son of Matthias, and then our our own Josephus, the son of Matthias. Again, I know what you're already thinking. These ten kings couldn't possibly be part of the beast when they were in fact fighting against Rome. Oh, were they now? That's just the problem with the illusion of choice. The two-hand approach rallies its troops on every side, but both wings ultimately serve the same bird. That's Government 101. Yahusha had already exposed the Pharisees and the temple controllers as the sons of Hasatan in Yochanan 8.4. The ten kings were serving Rome all along, and if you don't believe me, then take another look at Josephus, one of the other ten horns. Clearly, Josephus was a spook. Nobody simply emerges from a cave in Galilee after commanding his soldiers to suicide in mass and then accidentally manages to become a propagandist for the Flavians. Nobody. He was working for Rome from the very beginning. They all were. The war of the Yahudim was set up to fail, which also explains who they were really at war with. No, not Rome, nor the state of Yehuda. They were at war with the Lamb. Um, I almost wrote a whole section here on how, according to Josephus, his own writings, he talks about the uh, conspiracy that the Pharisees had against the Levitical priesthood, that they actually wanted to destroy the temple. Um, so that they could bring in the, uh, the, the Talmud as the rule of the land because the Levites weren't necessarily having it. And so as long as the temple was removed, they could have the Talmud. If the temple comes back, then the Sanhedrin um, and come back to, to power. And they can't have that. All right, the second beast. We're almost done. Vespasian and Titus again. That's who the second beast from the land is. Two separate word pictures intend to describe the same thing, but from a slightly different perspective. When Yochanan witnessed the first beast rising out of the sea, that was likely another way of saying the Ruach of the Seven Kings had come up out of the abyss. We've been over this already. Review is good, though. It was a picture of Leviathan, but also resurrection imagery intended to contrast the Lamb of Elohim. Follow along. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by the sword and did live. Having read thus far, the appearance of the lamb who spoke as a dragon should be self-apparent. The two horns are a father-son duo, and their messianic comparisons were empowered by the breath of a dragon, likely seraphim, perhaps even Hasatan, but who really knows? And what is the purpose of the second beast? to cause the earth and them which dwell within to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So, seems self-explanatory, no? The arrival of the second beast, however, should not be strictly relegated to a death and rebirth ceremony. Believe it or not, we've just experienced the two-hand approach to magic. 
the left and the right, black and white, the checkerboard of dualism. Nero may have been a master wizard, but so were his successors. Notice how the second beast arrives from the land. He's just conquered Yehuda. Jerusalem is fallen. With the victorious arrival of Vespasian and Titus, the black magic of Nero was overturned in favor of the Flavian dynasty. Don't get confused, though. Remember in The Wizard of Oz when Glinda, the Witch of the South, helped Dorothy conquer the Wicked Witch of the West? They're all witches. Therefore, choose your Caesar, Nero or Vespasian. They're different heads of the same beast. I had earlier thought to bring up the Ouroboros without commenting upon it. That was a purposeful decision on my part, but not because the profoundness of its inclusion evaded me. I was simply saving remarks for the present page. For the Ouroboros, you see, is the circular doctrine of death and rebirth, or an eternal cycle, if you will. Plato described the Ouroboros as the first living creature in the universe, an immortal, perfect creature. It should not surprise us to find that the Ouroboros, once translated from Greek, means tail, food, and I eat. The Ouroboros can most notably be detected in alchemy, wherein wizards aspire for, uh, aspire for spiritual transcendence through the death and resurrection of society. Though we can trace its origins back even further to the mysteries of Isis in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And who was Cleopatra again but Isis incarnate? An attempt was made to find an actual movie still from the never-ending story. Specifically, I wanted a photo of the boy flying upon Falcor. My mission was only successful in so much that I couldn't pass up the picture of a puppy. I mean, come on. If you could fly on a puppy, you know you would. But I digress. And the never-ending story, the Ouroboros, was central to its plot. Though the nothing is deconstructing everything in its path, it is through the boy, uh, Bastian, and the Empress of Fantasia, that the creation expands again. Fantasia is an allegory for the astral realm, by the way. And seeing as how Bastian uh, christens the nameless empress after Aleister Crowley's moon child, that should be the tip-off. The Ouroboros of creation expands again through the act of sex magic. If you recall, the empress and moon child's adolescent union in the vagina space fortress quickly materializes the fortune dog uh the fortune dog dragon falcor into a real creature on the material plane they've quite literally conjured a demon sex magic and so now that i've had time to think about it i would not recommend taking a ride on a conjured anything even if it were an adorable puppy i guess that's where i kind of leave it off right there so that is all I have on that. And I would be curious to get anyone's thoughts. Did I miss the mark? Did I, did I stick the landing? Did I fumble with the ball? You guys tell me. I can take the criticism. And crickets. I'm going to put the soundtrack in here of crickets. I see that several people are typing right now. Yes, just to get this straight, I am making the point that revelation already happened. Yeah. 
Thank you, Katie, for inserting the uh, the chirping crickets in here. Except the last few chapters, though, right? Except for, yeah, the coming down of New Jerusalem, for sure. So that beast being Leviathan with the multiple heads, do you see, um, do you have an idea on how it fed the nations? Physically, right? Like, you're talking about um, in the LXX where it said... It fed the nations. And then there's also in, is it in Second Baruch? I know it talks about an Enoch. I'm trying to think where the, the book is, where it says that uh, Messiah would slay it. Am I not mistaken there? So my thought, and without having done a study on this myself, uh, because I haven't dug into this yet, so I would be interested, because I don't have a dog in this fight, and I'm just curious what the texts actually say, but I kind of envision like Leviathan is he's physical, but he's also, you know, he's exoteric, but he's also esoteric. He's, he's, there, there's something that is a literal, I believe that there is a literal divine being that's a, you know, a Ruach type of creature that is Leviathan. Uh, there might be more than one, but it's also, it's also esoteric. And so that to, to give us many kind of, you know, truths about the world around us. But I have a feeling that when death itself is thrown, when Sheol is thrown into the lake of fire, at the very end, that that is actually a picture of Leviathan being destroyed. All right? You can quote me on that later. I, I might change my opinion. But when we read in Third Baruch, when I read the, the seven firmaments of heaven, and we only made it about halfway up through the third heaven, and it talks there about a huge serpent creature that devours the dead. and it says that that this this um that all the dead like the entire realm of it says Hades but you know we'll call it Sheol that it is within the realm of this creature so it's like it's actually saying that Sheol itself is a within the 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 belly of a beast which is interesting so if 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 that's true then when Sheol is thrown in the lake of fire it tells me that this dragon creature will be destroyed as well so that's how I see it and there's there's passages that i can't find in scripture that do identify the the mouth of leviathan as the entrance to uh the pits to sheol like he literally swallows people and he's also identified as one of the the princes of of sheol so uh, all that just to consider that's kind of what i think may might be going on you were just saying reminds me of jonah and the uh, the whale or the fish, and when he goes into the belly, it says he cries out from Sheol. Is the word there actually fish, or is it just like great sea creature? Yeah, or something? right. Is it tannin? I don't know. I I haven't. Uh, maybe that's something uh, Ronit can answer for us. And I've long pondered that because if you look at a lot of and so just so everyone understands what he's saying here, it it literally says that when when Jonah is crying out in the belly of the the fish, the tannin, whatever it is that he he talks about being like below the roots of the earth like below the mountains like he's in so it's it's the idea that Jonah actually died he went in there like he wasn't you know when people say that you know oh nobody could survive a fish for 3 days well he didn't he died it's actually a picture of messiah i believe that when he was uh, spewed out of the mouth of this fish that he it was actually a resurrection that was happening that's the miracle the miracle is 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 not whether or not someone could survive but the fact that he died and was resurrected and so a lot of the ancients, you can find really old artwork, and they all seem to paint the, uh, the, the, the fish that ate 
Jonah as a type of uh, like a sea serpent. They didn't paint it as a big fish or a whale or anything like that. It was like a big um, sea serpent. So there was, to the ancients, however they justified it, I don't know, they appeared to believe that it was that kind of creature. It's worth considering. Um, I've heard a description of some great fish type of idea that would terrorize the ships by spinning around them, like going around and going around and going around and causing them to spin. And when I heard that, you know, the more esoteric understanding, it just made me think of, you know, what do we call spin today? You know, the media, many talking heads spinning the, the narrative. And they're called what? Anchors? I don't know. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that sea serpents are the same thing as Leviathan. I'm seeing Leviathan as a very unique creature. Um, but you guys should all know, we're going a little off topic here, but I am fascinated with sea serpents. And uh, I do believe that they were alive very recently in history. And I think the last one that was reported was actually in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, it was in the 1970s. The 1970s. And apparently it, it, it was huge and it washed up to shore. It was dead. And people all saw it and they were actually uh, reporting. They were cutting it up and taking it home and like putting their freezer and stuff. And um, but I actually have on my wall right here in my office. It's a uh, when I I don't know if I've given the story in a while, so I'll give it again. You know, just entertain me for those who've already heard this because I love this story. When we were living in Oxford, Oxford is a beautiful city. I mean, this is like pure Millennial Kingdom city. It's just gorgeous. I wish I could go back there now with that understanding and just walk those streets again. And they have very unique shops all throughout there. And there was one store. It was just a map store. Like if you like old maps, I wish I could go back in there now and look at those. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I wasn't even thinking about that back then. I go into this map store, uh, all these really old hundreds and hundreds of years old, like very expensive maps. And uh, the, the shop owner looks at me. He's like, can I help you with something? You know, is there something you're looking for? And I said, do you have anything with sea serpents? And he looked at me and he said, I think I have just the thing you're looking for. And he, he took me, it was like straight out of the movies. Like he took me to the back of the shop. Like I had to go through like that back curtain. And like, there's another like room back there with like a whole nother selection of maps that he doesn't even have on display. And uh, he pulled this one out. He's like, I think this one is what you're looking for. And it was, it was an original um, piece of paper, a original leaf from a book from the uh, 1600s. And and it had it's a it's from a, a scientific journal that a guy the, the guy who who drew this is one of the most famous um, really of all time uh, whether he existed or not right blah 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 but he he was chronicling uh, creatures all over the earth that were contemporaries of his that existed and so on this page I have all these different types of like ore fish and different things and he has there a huge sea serpent and he actually did it as a uh, contemporary of that time. So I think that's really cool. And um, I, I have that framed in my wall here as I write. Yeah, I should have asked for a moon map. I know if I could, if I could go back and I would, I would, man, if I could go back to that map store, I'd be like looking for dates, you know, and be like, can you show me like, what you know, and I'd be looking for that J and the I and, and I'd be like looking at so much stuff in there. I'd be looking for stuff with like, you know, 
with California as an island and yeah, it's just kicking myself now at lost opportunities. I mean, there was things in that store that were probably like not even published online. I was interested um, in, you were talking about, um, you know, Hasatan has Intel, but so does Yahua. The other agents working both sides. I was wondering um, if you can expand on that, like what your thoughts are, what that looks like. Um, okay. Yes. That's thank you. So I had said just before that, either you believe the Bible is true or you don't. I mean, it's really that simple. And so when you're getting into um, the first century, the first century, when you're looking at the historical records, this is one of the things that draw has driven many people recently to actually abandon the faith, particularly Josephus. Um, you know, just I'll say there's there's a lot of similarities between what Josephus says and actually the Bible, and so some people will theorize that Josephus actually wrote the Bible and it's all a psyop, it's all made up, and this is where I, you know, and then you get into like the was it the 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 Caesar's Messiah, whatever, that was a popular book that came out like in the 70s or 80s or whatever. And a lot of people will resource that, which advocates that they, the Caesars were trying to pacify the Mediterranean by uh, inventing Yahusha HaMashiach. Never mind the fact that the Jews all seemed to buy Hook, Line, and Sinker too, and the Talmud and all that kind of stuff. But that being said, at the end of the day, either you believe that Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yashorel, is legit or he's not. And I could go into any number of reasons why I believe that the Bible is true and that it ex it explains and actually exposes all the other religions of the world. And I, by the way, I believe all the other religions of the world are legitimate too. I mean, what I mean by that is I believe Bacchus is a real deity. I believe Apollo, Zeus, all those guys, you know, uh, you go into the Far East and look at the religions. I believe that when people pray to these gods, they have their prayers answered. And the thing is, is that's where we get into the fact that Yahuwah, he really put these, these Elohim over humanity, and they led humanity away from his Torah, from his instructions in righteousness. Right now I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked here. So at the end of the day, uh, you either believe or you don't. And if you believe Yahuwah is true, you, then you can believe that he has the ability to send in his agents um, to, to speak the truth in a very dark world. Um, you, you believe in the prophets that, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? You just go down this list of prophets that they were, they were communicated with the, with the Most High. They were able to write down Yah's will for our life. The same thing with Yochanan in Revelation. Meanwhile, you have Satan who's got his agents everywhere. And, you know, he can give prophecies that are correct and all sorts of stuff. He's got his intel. He's running the governments of the world. He's trying to usurp the Bible. He's trying to... Um, at least our belief in it. Um, I believe he has to give it to us. I, I believe that, that he knows that the, the best damnation he can create for us is to give us the truth and then lie to us about it. Uh, if he hid the Bible from us, if he hid Torah from us, then, then we would have a way out. We would have an excuse of not having knowledge. Uh, and so we have to have that knowledge. Um, hopefully that kind of address the, what I'm looking at. Yahusha gave the parable of the fact of the of the wheat and the tares, and that, you know, the angel, when Satan came in and cast the tares in all the wheat, the angels wanted to destroy it and start again. Uh, those are, of course, Yah's agents. And, and he's like, no, we, we, we're going to see this through to the end. And so we have to live in a world 
where there are, I mean, I've just kind of accepted that fact now, even in the truther world, that there are many tears among us, uh, YouTubers, you know, authors, you know, all sorts of stuff. And they are placed there and, and they're, you know, we call them spooks or whatever. I've just accepted that. I've just accepted it. It's just, it is what it is. And that Yah is going to sort, I'm not really too concerned about who those people are because Yah is going to sort this out in the end. Did, did I explain that, John, or do you need better clarification? No, yeah, that, that was, that was good. Um, yeah, I, I agree. You know, there's, there's a lot of tears and, um, you, you'll see people in the truth or community. There's, there's those who are, you know, from the new age perspective or, or various things. And it's, yeah, they've got some truths in there, but they've also got a lot of exceptions and, and they they could be either willing or unwillingly, you know, they could be deceived themselves. Um, but yeah, there's both. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm curious if you guys have ever done a study or discussed the possibility that Revelations has two different occurrences. Once for the punishment for the Jews and their unbelief, and then again what's happening right now as a punishment for Christianity and and what we've done, you know, because, I mean, we have gone way, way, way backward. And I just see too many things happening today that fit Revelations almost perfectly. Now, whether the enemy is actually doing that to make us think the wrong thing, or is it actually happening? Because if, if God punished his own people, his own chosen people, the Jews, well, why do we think as Gentiles and modern-day Christians that he wouldn't do the same thing to us at the end of our age? Well, if someone else wants to talk about that, that's, that's great. Yeah, you said a lot of great things in there. And um, I, I think I agree with what you're saying. I think you were saying with two things, and I see both things happening. So let's just talk about the beast, for example, the beast of Rome. Uh, you know, Daniel, in his vision, he saw uh, four beasts. Now, we've addressed in this group that in, in Hebrew, it's actually animals. He saw four animals, but it's the same thing. A wild animal is a beast. Uh, it's not a, 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 it's not they're not animals that you want as pets, right? They're beasts. So, you know, when we talk about the beast being thrown in the lake of fire, people are like, people are like, well, how, if Revelation was all already fulfilled, then how in the world was the beast thrown in the lake of fire? What, what do you have now? It's like, well, wait a second. You've had a whole succession of beasts throughout history. What happened to those? They were probably thrown in the lake of fire. You know, Yod take, you know, these beasts rise, Yod disposes of them, and then the next rises, he disposes of them. And there's things that you see throughout history that are cyclical. Um, you can you can look at all this the different resets, like the the Genesis one reset and what happened beforehand. You can look at the reset leading up to Noah's flood. You can re look at the reset leading up to the kingdom, and then what we're leading up to now, the next reset. You have these these you know days of Noah themes that are repeated over and over again spiritually. You know these mark of the beast, the mark you know versus the mark of Yah, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, um, well, so. Yeah, so there are things today, and going into the Ouroboros, that explains a lot. And seeing what's happening right now, I mean, I don't know if we want to go into the QAnon thing right now, and this idea of, of you know, of this of the left and the right hand approach that you know apparently there's uh, this this whole worldwide system that another 
the other flip of the coin is trying to take out, you know, the, the agents of light, the white helmets or whatever. And, you know, that that's exactly how the Ouroboros works. That's exactly what happened with the the destruction of the Caesars and the Flavians coming in. The, the, the Romans saw the Flavians as, you know, the agents of light, the, the good guys. You know, they destroyed the wicked Caesars. Even the Romans thought that. And, and yet the Bible exposes them all as the same beast, right? So, okay. So on the other hand... There are things that I believe that Hasatan is mimicking and copying. I'll give you an obvious one. 1948 Israel. That is not a prophecy in the Bible of the coming together, the houses of, of Yehuda and Israel. It's not. There's no way it matches that. And I look at that and I see that that's something that Satan was mimicking to create a false prophecy. Now, it could be real prophecies of, of Edom and the Gog and Magog invasion, as I pointed out. But it is, therefore, you cannot say that Israel is the fig tree generation. It, and in no way can be the fig tree generation. Therefore, any prophecies which stem off of that cannot be true based on Israel, if, if that makes any sense. Like a deductive argument, if we just line them up. So um, there are things that are being mimicked today to look like we are in, like revelation has not happened, that we are living it. But then there are things that are, are repeated spiritual uh, patterns. So um, I, if I can add a few things. Um, so I, the way I look at, um, at all the prophecies in the Bible is definitely cyclical. And it starts, it all starts with um, Deuteronomy 28. So I um, read excerpts from Deuteronomy 28 last night and it was it you know all of us were kind of shocked because the details that were there were up to i mean to the smallest detail of what happened in the destruction of the temple in jerusalem was predicted in deuteronomy okay like not in isaiah or Ezekiel. We're talking about one of the first books. Um, so that chapter in Deuteronomy outlines the template. And the template is you have, you, you have the blessings and you have the curse. Okay? So the template is you are obedient to God, um, you follow the law, then everything will be awesome, beautiful utopia. You don't follow Yah. You are not obedient to the law. Here is what's going to happen. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, that's the template. And, and then when you look at the rest of um, the history in the next books in the Bible, that template keeps, keeps uh, playing itself again and again and again. You have, and, and usually it's driven by the leaders. If the leader um, is a righteous leader that leads the, the, the nation to, uh, to obedience, which we all know that most people are followers, they are not leaders, so they will follow their leader. So if the leader follows them into obedience and, 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 be, and observing uh, the law, then the kingdom is 
experiencing the most thriving period. Peace, happiness, prosperity, everything is beautiful. And then we have a leader that uh, brings idolatry and and basically takes the the entire nation uh, or most of the people um, in the wrong path. Then you have wars and and you know and calamities. So the template is set in Deuteronomy, and it keeps repeating. Um, I think, like when I look at all of the the prophecies in the Bible, I think that pretty much ninety percent of them, or even more, already happened, already took place. I mean, the the prophets mostly prophesied about their time, but. Us, when we look backward and we read those prophecies, uh, it looks eerie familiar. Why? Because the template repeats itself. Either we have uh, a generation that follows Yah or a generation that rejects Yah. And and the the blessings and the cares will happen again and again. So I think most of the prophecies already happened. And um, when we read the book, um, The Destruction of Jerusalem, and um, that author made an amazing case of um, pretty much all the prophecies of Yeshua took place already, okay? But one thing is that is interesting about that book, that book that is not referring to the book of Revelation. And Desmond made that uh, observation last night. And we were all a little bit speechless because, because all of a sudden we realized, wait a moment, Desmond is right. Uh, the entire book is outlining the, the case that all of the prophecies of Yeshua happened um basically in in you know around the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem um but he never used even once the book of revelation and that was kind of a um a, a mystery for us and we are still trying to come to grip with that mystery of why he did not use the book of Revelation. But he pretty much made a bulletproof um, case and um, oh, without even using the book of Revelation. I mean, so those are the few thoughts that I have. Speaking of a template that is repeated, you can just look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Let's see, the first, hoarder is, the first writer is the, force, uh, the, the white writer. And he's got the bow and arrow. And I mean, I believe he's basically uh, a king of, of false doctrine, an antichrist type of person, which then leads to war and then leads to like famine and then to death, right? And so yes. you, can, you can see the obvious pattern that happens all throughout history. The four horsemen yes. come out repeatedly. And one of the things that people really... I think I wish they could get past with the book of Revelation is that, and I've said this before in our study, that when Neil Cannon is going up to the throne room in heaven and he's seeing the, the throne set out, the divine council is, is seated, orders and business, they're opening up scrolls. There's a lamp, there's a, a scroll that only the lamb can open up. And as he opens it up, these series of events happen. And 
I, I would imagine that if I were to be able to go up to heaven today and then report back to you guys, I might see a very similar scene. I might go to the courtroom and I could see the order of business going down. You see the king and the judge and and they're sitting down and they're deciding the fate of humanity and you know so on and so forth. And you're seeing scrolls opened and and books and things are you know declared and there's voices and then things happen. And it's just it, it's like he's seeing just the order of you know the order of business in the heavens and how it relates to the earth. And so people say, no, no, that has to be a future event. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it's not happening now. It's still happening. And um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that there, as we said, it's cyclical. The template is already set up um, before um, the Israelites um, enter Canaan. Uh, the template is there, and then the the cycle keeps repeat, repeating itself. But beyond it. Like, um, if we look at it as the, the inner circle, there is an external circle, and that circle is still happening on a, on a bigger picture, and that's the circle of the, the, on, on the, in the divine realm of having, you know, um, the, the fallen angels. And um, so, so, so that process is still happening of, of um, the the influence that they had and the corruption that they brought, and then they are still locked and still, you know, the the final punishment hasn't happened yet, you know. So that's like the bigger cycle, and that cycle is described, in my opinion, in the ten week prophecy of Enoch. That's the huge cycle, okay. But within that that um, cycle. We have all of these little cycles that we are going through, and the same template repeats. I also liked how you addressed the blessing and the curse, which is, is amazing on so many levels because I mean, you had addressed the blessing and the curse as more of a national level. Like if you if you have a ruler that chooses the blessing and the people will follow and so on and so forth. But this obviously actually you know, also works on the personal level, right? And we could all see this in our lives that when we choose to follow Yah's ways, his laws, that we are blessed in ways we never imagined before, you know, and the rest of the world is telling us yes. that we're the ones that are cursed and we're the ones in bondage. And we're like, uh, I think you got that reversed because we, you know, we see you guys in bondage to your sin that you call freedom, right? Yes. And, and so we have things that one of the ways of the blessing I'll tell you guys right now is the fact that in the next three or four months, I'm expected to be a father again for the third time. And I could go through that whole story, but that is clearly a blessing from the most high because I decided to clean up my act, meaning I eat clean food, I detox, I'm living, you know, healthier life and according to his laws and yeah, has blessed me in my body and the body of my wife. And but this also the the blessing the curse isn't just for this world. The blessing the curse is also future tense for the next world to come. People choose whether they want their inheritance now, or they're going to get their inheritance in the kingdom to come. Uh, those who get their inheritance now, they want a slice of the pie. They end up in the lake of fire. They've already cashed it in. They've received their blessing, and they choose the curse. Those who choose the the blessing are those who are going to inherit eternal life. So it's. It's not just on a national level. It's it's on a macro level and a micro level. It's on multiple different levels, this idea of the blessing and the curse. 
Uh, absolutely, but I do see like a, a bigger pattern of the leaders. You know, when you look in the Bible, it's just so clear. Um, and right now, it's the same thing. I mean, when we look around, people are mostly followers, and um, most people are not choosing well who to follow. I can't even imagine a leader rising in this environment or in the system. Like it's set up in such a way that I couldn't even imagine someone who is following Yah's laws to actually get very far. No. And, aside, and, and, aside, yeah. aside from having a YouTube following of maybe a couple hundred thousand people or something. Like I can't, I can't see that. Yeah. Now, not only this, you, you cannot imagine it rising within the political um, system, but also within the the church. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the church itself. I mean, there is no one to follow there. They are all part of this corrupted system. Yeah, I, I recall re reading, I can't remember which book it was, Baruch or one of the prophets, and they were they were talking about uh, the the end time period where the the word is 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 not being um i don't want to say being spread or being spoken but it was it was scarce to hear the truth uh uh throughout the world uh not to say that it wasn't it, it was just not being not being a, not being heard by the peoples so it's interesting to that we we don't have no you know specific leaders out there on tv and you know being exposed out there in, in a in a great way it's all like small uh type of ministries and and sharing uh that that's being done and that grassroots type of uh, uh sharing and and that was been, that's been prophesied about too no i wanted to get your opinion on something here it's concerning the fact that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, and John seems to be the only one that survived past the destruction of the temple. And coincidentally, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the only ones that have the prophecies of Yeshua that relate to the destruction of the temple. The Gospel of John doesn't have those prophecies. Um, I was wondering your thoughts on that, that idea, because I just realized that recently. Well, it sounds like you could expound on that a little bit better than I could, because uh, I hadn't ever thought about that, so I don't have a comment on that. Um, and maybe you could reiterate that again. So what do you mean by he survived? Well, he lived to a good, ripe old age, and he lived through the destruction of Jerusalem, and you know, he, he was just alive beyond the destruction of Jerusalem, whereas uh, you have Matthew, he died before, Mark died before, we can assume Luke died before um, being with Paul. So John, he um, uh, there's lots of evidence that he survived his full life and his life wasn't taken from him. He died like a natural death at an old age and actually made it far past the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. And we can see that even Matthew's um, uh, even Matthew's gospel um, was handed down. Uh, for the apostles to take out before they even left out on their missions and part of that some of the stuff in that book that we are reading is that the reason he thought that that was the case um or the reason he thought that john didn't mention the prophecies of yeshua 
is because since he survived past the destruction of Jerusalem, that he couldn't include those prophecies because there would be this controversy of did he write it before or did he write it after? So it wouldn't hold the same weight as the other ones who all died before. So it had to have been a prophecy. That's 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 interesting. Uh, that, that actually is really interesting. Here's here's my thing, and hopefully you guys know my position on this is that I I do believe Yochanan lived to upwards of seventy A.D. Um, that Revelation was written before that point. I don't believe Revelation was written afterwards. Um, I don't believe the Gospel of John was written afterwards, and the reason being is that Yahusha's prophecies were that he was coming back for his disciples. So what does that mean if he's coming back for them, but he doesn't take them? So it is my personal belief that he actually came and took those who were, he took a certain portion of them uh, with him in either 66 to 69 or 70 AD. Well, one of those prophecies is actually um, where, where he says, what is it to you? He says it to the other disciples. He says, what is it to you if I say that he should see me coming? And he was referring to John. And then they started yep. to speak amongst themselves saying, oh, John's not going to die. You know, he's going to live forever. And he's like, no, I didn't say he's going to live forever. I just said, what is it to you if he makes it to that day? So like even Yeshua points out that same fact that I'm referring to here. Actually, well, Desmond, when we read it, when I read it in the Hebrew manuscript, <laughs> the dialogue did not go exactly like what you what what you read in English. It was not talking about um, John uh, uh, surviving uh, the calamities, and it had nothing to do with it. So we, we need to go back to that to those verses and we can talk about it again because I don't have it in front of me but the, the Hebrew manuscript that does not imply any of what you all of you have been led to believe all those years yeah we, we yeah talk, I would go ahead Rob we also talked last night about uh, what if the possibility that Yokinen wrote Revelation prior to the destruction of the temple and he lived afterwards. And is it possible that he wrote more afterwards speaking, you know, and like Michael mentioned, not the last three chapters, <laughs> uh, maybe there's a few chapters that are for the short season that are part of revelation. We just hypothesized that thought. So what do you guys think then about you should, talking about saying he was coming back for his disciples. Because there's a few there that he, that he specifically says, I'm coming back for you, to take you where I am. Well, yeah, that, that, I guess that depends on, did he mean that literally or figuratively? Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, I can't answer that right now, no. Well, personally, I think he did come back for some of his disciples, but, you know, like we read that Peter... He got killed. Matthew got killed. Mark got killed. So we know that some of them definitely died. Some of them did die. Um, I, I'm a little. I'm a little. I am skeptical about some things. I, I don't have a problem with with Kepha dying. I mean, it even seems to say so in John about stretching out his arms. Um, and there's plenty of of. It seems like it seems like there's 
witness to the fact that he did die in the circus in about 64 AD or the whereabouts. And then we know that uh, uh, Yaakov, uh, even according to Josephus, that he was actually personally stoned to death at um, by the order of Ananus, who actually went against the Sanhedrin. He, he illegally um, had him killed, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, I think a lot of them didn't make it, but I, I take it quite literally uh, that Yahusha said he was like because if if it's if it's figurative, then then I'm going to say well it was figurative when he said that the the temple controllers would see him at his father's right hand, you know, and it was figurative, you know, when he talked about these prophecies of the the Olivet discourse and so on and so forth. I don't believe they are. I don't believe that they're figurative. I think that he. Um, he was promising that he literally was, I mean, all these promises that he is standing at the door. I mean, what does that mean? If it didn't mean anything, it was just like, okay, that's nice. He's standing at the door. He's going to knock and he's going to leave. And we're going to still be here. When I, when I think about all this, that he's coming, like that's, that's, that's a big deal. You know what? If he's not going to judge me, then what, what does it matter? If he's just going to come and judge what if it's what what if he meant um that it's part of the first resurrection well i'm not sure what you i'm not sure what you mean by that but i i do believe that that he did come for a certain choice group of people i don't think yeah. he came for everyone but he came for a certain segment and i believe that those who were left behind were the more apostate ones whereas you get you know christianity and so forth after 78 AD, guys, I think that I, I start to really question the timeline. I think it starts getting really wonky after that. Uh, it's, for example, it's uh, when did Pompeii blow? It was 79 AD, I believe it was. At 79, under the reign of, uh, see, was Domitian might have been emperor by that time. I'm not sure. I think Titus might have been. One of the two brothers were emperor. And I think maybe the way it worked is that this. Bashan or Titus died, and then uh, Pompeii blew. Well, you know, there's interesting research out there to show that Pompeii actually blew in the 1500s. And of course, we can put an I in front of that. And, you know, there, there's some really interesting research out there. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Did it go in 78 to 81, or did it go in the 500s? And so from, from like this point forward, it's when I think the, the timeline starts getting really wonky, how they were pushing things around and stuff. I, I, can, I can lead it up to about 70 AD and go, okay, I can, I can buy this. I know that these events happened. But I do believe that something happened of such great, enormous importance around 70 AD, not just the destruction of Jerusalem. Something happened so important that, that like the, the elite, the, the controllers of the world were like, we got to, we got to we got to you know scrape this we got to hide this from people people can't know about what truly went down i don't again that's just my opinion but uh, you were going to say something um i think possibly the church of philadelphia might have been the ones that he came for um because when we look at the different churches they're the only one that didn't get a rebuke and they happen to be the same church that uh john led yeah now the the church of jerusalem which was run by yaakov they, according to historians, uh, around 68 to 69, or in the whereabouts of there, uh, after the Romans, you know, remember the Romans came up, they surrounded Jerusalem. And I, he probably talked about it. I didn't read the book you guys read. But uh, once they departed, the, the Church of Jerusalem, what were called the Nazarene, the Nazarene, they fled across the Jordan to, to what we call Jordan today, but, you know, Edom back then. 
And they kind of went into obscurity in history. Nobody really knows what happened to them. I, cause, and I think it's because they weren't there. I think they were taken. I also have a, another question concerning the Caesars. Um, so you have Nero as the sixth. Um, then Vespasian comes in. And I read something that said there was four Caesars within a span of like, I think it was six months or something. It was a very, very short time. And there was four Caesars. So I was wondering how those numbers work out with the sixth, the seventh, then would there be an eighth and the last one wouldn't be included in the count? So, yeah, you're referring to the year 69 AD. It's called the year of the four Caesars. So when Nero um, uh, took a knife to his neck or his face or whatever, the, 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 the Caesars, the line of the Caesars, you know, he had killed off basically almost everyone who originated from Julius Caesar or Augustus. And he just, that line was totaled. He was the last of that line. And then there were three others. So in one year, 1698, there were four Caesars that sprung up. The fourth one was the, the Flavians. There were three others that they ruled, yeah, for like three months at a time, you know, three months, six months. It was really a quick succession. And they were just being, you know, I talked about that tonight. They were being offed or killed or suicided or, or whatever. And none of them were related to the um, to the Caesars or the Flavians. And what I'm stating is is that the 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 sixth head, which had the mortal wound, was Nero, and it that was the the death of Rome. I mean, Rome was almost done in at that time. Like it was it was like the death of Rome. It was really bad. I mean, they had a civil war where millions, I think millions of people were apparently dying, being killed. It was brutal. And this is, this was also like Israel was kind of like Rome's almost like their Vietnam in a way. And now of course Rome wins the war, but they were going into these, you know, these people in the desert who were zealots, you know, with knives in their, you know, in their coats and going up and, you know, killing, massacring these guys. And they would just, you know, move around from town to town and just keep massacring them. And, um, and so that looked like the, 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 just the end of Rome. And it was when the Flavians destroyed Jerusalem and rode in that I believe that's where Rome was resurrected. The beast, you know, that had the mortal wound was resurrected. Does that explain that? So, you know, some people can argue with me and say, no, the, the three other Caesars, that doesn't, you know, they should count. Like, I don't, I don't count them. I don't think that they count as any heads of the beast. So you have the seven heads, so the sixth would be Nero, and then Vespasian would be the seventh. But then when we have the eight and the nine, the other two that were also um, reigned in that short little period right there, that those aren't included in this, you know, seven. Or I noticed how um, uh, you interpreted how there there was an eighth head, but then the ninth. So what about that ninth? No. Like why wouldn't... So, yeah, so I interpret it like this. Um, I, I there's there's two ways to look at this. Okay, one is that the the uh, so when when the the six head was lopped off, that two more. So then then John tra transitions to now it has eight heads. So the the only way that I can think to explain that is how is the Leviathan, uh, which you know that he's talking about a a spiritual mythological religious whatever creature whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that's the idea that you lop off a head, two more grow. So you lop off the head. Now there's there's two more that comes in, and there's so there's eight now. But Nero's dead, so now you have three new ones. You have the two heads that spring up are Titus and Vespasian. 
Okay, they're the they're the they're the now the the they are the new sixth and seventh. They could be the seventh and eighth, but I think they're the, the new sixth and seventh, and then the eighth would be Domitian. So Vespasian had two sons, Titus and Domitian. And the thing is about Titus and Vespasian is that they were um, they were brought in and um, called Caesar at the same time. Like they were both like they were like co-rulers as as Caesar. Really interesting. They they had the same name. So it was almost like they were the same person in a way, you know, father, son, and so on. So that's that's how I um, add up the math on that. I mean, I could be wrong, but uh, there could be a few different scenarios here, how it works. But clearly there has to be an explanation of why it starts out seven, and then there's eight heads um, on this beast. And that's the best I came up with. Okay, I see where you're going with it now. Instead of, you know, having six and then adding seventh, eighth, nine, it's actually the seventh and the eighth replace the sixth. I get what you're saying now. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, um, yes, but there, there might be technically, there, there could be theoretically nine heads. If there's, if, if, if the sixth is replaced, so you have the sixth again, uh, that now is the sixth and the seventh, that means the eighth would be nine in actuality if there's two sixes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that that's what I meant to say. I said it yeah. wrong. So the six actually split into two, so it's it's the six again and the seventh, and then you have one more. Yeah, that's how I see it. Yes, and I'm not the only one. I mean, there's other who, when you look at like the research of this I, again, uh, this book. I didn't read this book that you guys read, but when you look at some of the research of the other uh, others out there who believe that this was fulfilled by 70 AD, they will come to some of the same conclusions. One of one of the things that was um, was what Yahusha said. There would be since the beginning, the there'll be no other. Um, what's that quote? Um, destruction like this. Um, this seventy A.D. the destruction of Jerusalem, or this prophecy here, is what he was talking about. And the book we read last uh, been reading on Wednesday night really described it like that and what you share about Nero and how you know leading up to this time how evil it was what you know it was a horror show it was indeed and you know, but I've talked about this before though is that and I, I, I've talked about this a lot in my writings too. Is that this is a this is all by the plan of like the Intel department, and I mean you just you look at like uh, artwork today, and you have to ask yourself why are so okay the CIA we know that the CIA started uh, started creating um, artists in the 1950s and 60s. Now they you know they've always had a hand in this, but from some of the the the, the documents we've seen revealed. But they were creating the abstract art, and they were actually what they were doing in the fifties and sixties. They were deconstructing art in order to deconstruct morality. You know, like Jackson Pollock and these guys—they were all CIA guys, and so they were putting these these artists in these positions. And what the CIA would start doing is they would start funneling money through these organizations, and they would start buying this artwork for millions and millions of dollars. So we ask, well, why is this artwork so important? It's because, I mean, why is it worth so much? Why is it some of, some of it worth ten to twenty million dollars now? Well, because the CIA is actually paying for it. 
They're the ones telling us how important this is. And what they're doing is, is that, you know, they're actually implementing our very notion of artwork and, you know, why it's important and how it changes our morality. The Intel department's actually doing that. They're the ones, you know, obviously pushing the, mu the music industry, Hollywood, the movies. And so you see the same exact thing with the life of Nero and some of that stuff. It's all theater. They're, you know, he's building this pleasure palace and, you know, having these orgies there and the, the people, it's all the gossip all over Rome and the, the whole empire. They're all talking about it. And, you know, they're starting to, they, they push it out there to, um, to have people accept it, but also to deconstruct society. Right. And, and you'll talk, you'll see that, that whole um, constricting Ouroboros even throughout the empire with one, you know, uh, like Caesar Augustus, for example, he was considered very moral. They thought he was one of the most moral leaders they ever had. If you look at their own writings, uh, and this is, of course, this is not from a biblical perspective, of course. Um, and then you see it deconstructed to Nero, and then the Flavians come in and they they kind of raise it up again into kind of a new, you know, you know, some sort of new Renaissance, right? And so. This is what they do, and this is what they're doing now. When you can look around and how they're deconstructing society with our trashy TV and movies and music and you know the artwork and all the things we have to put up with all day, and they're they're doing that just to destroy us. And then on the other end, you know, it's it's kind of funny too. It's like the people who don't uh, conform to this, you know, they're like we're the we're the 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 quacky ones in society. Uh, but we're the ones that are actually going to survive it. The people who are who are you know going into the androgynous um, agenda and all this other kind of stuff, like they're the ones that are going to be destroyed. They're not going to make make it in the reboot. That's the way it's it's always designed and set up that way, and they don't get it. Like they're being led to the slaughter. And those of us, you know, it, it's almost like we have this idea that we're going to be the ones that go to the FEMA camps, and I'm not saying we are or aren't. Um, but the thing is, is that. In the, the next reset, the way they've always set these things up is that they need the normal family people to be the ones to start repopulating the earth for them. It's always been that way. Just something to think about. Um, do you think maybe it like it will be like Disneyland like come to the camp? You know, <laughs> Bob Jones like i'm not a crystal ball so i don't know what it's going to look like you know if it's going to be like the people flocking to this fema camps are the ones that are you know they've taken the juice pack and or you know it's really going to be people hauling people who refuse i have no i'm not a crystal ball and i could see it going both ways i just bring that up because in terms of when you see societies you know that the, the 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 destruction of society and then the building back of it and it's just a constant fluctuation throughout history it's always the yeah. people that that are led to immorality that are destroyed and then the 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 moral people rise up on the other end and it's it's okay, something so pinocchio it, it reminds me of that and it goes right to the morals again and remember they turned into donkeys yeah and it, it reminds me of that. Like, okay, this is kind of what we're describing. But we see it in cartoons. We see it in this other. But it's really happening in real life. But because we don't have these extremes, we, well, we do now. We see it all. But it's become um, normalized in a way and um, advocated for, you know. Um, but we see it already happening. But we, we 
don't quite see it as it's been portrayed in like movies and cartoons and it's extreme um, nature of it. But we're living in that. People are living that. Yeah. And, and, and Mike, you're yeah. probably, and you're probably familiar with my, my, uh, my stuff on Pinocchio. And just so everyone knows, Pinocchio is one of the most profound stories out there. Pinocchio actually originates, uh, it is based off of a book called The Golden Ass. The Golden Ass is one of the oldest books in antiquity that it comes out of the mysteries of Isis. Almost everything from the ancient mysteries did not survive uh, for whatever reason. I, you know, they're probably in the vaults of the Vatican and being read to this day by the, the, those who are initiated. But the Golden Ass is on our shelves. And it, so basically, Pinocchio originates from the mysteries of Isis, the, the fairy mother, the star fairy. She's actually Isis. And, and Pinocchio is the neophyte, and he goes through his own. Uh, death and resurrection becomes a real boy. And it tells us the game plan. It tells us exactly how they function in society. And so what Mike was talking about, about the donkeys going to the salt mines, it's interesting because that's actually how... So keep in mind that Pinocchio, he, he, he's kind of like the Britney Spears in this. Like he's one of the elites that are sold, is sold into slavery. He sells his soul to slavery um, in a way, but then he he kind of messes up and he becomes like one of the profane and he goes off to Pleasure Island. And you see there at Pleasure Island what the elite, the slave masters are doing to humanity. And there it's it's funny because Disney did this and then he built Disneyland. Just like Mike said, it's 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 so eerie that like what what Walt Disney did after telling you the game plan. And so the, our slave masters set up this this Pleasure Island scenario where we all go off. And they actually show in there when, when Pleasure Island is being destroyed, the profane children there are destroying it. And they actually show like the Mona Lisa and they're, 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 they're showing you how they're going to you know, destroy all the artwork and the, like the statue ceremony we had back in 2020 with, uh, with Floyd and with George Floyd and all that. And anyways, and they... And they lead them off and they become the donkeys to work the mines. And that is how they see us in humanity. And it's only the very few, like Pinocchio, who is a neophyte who, you know, comes out the other end and, and figuratively dies, or in a, perhaps in a very literal way, and is actually initiated or brought in on the other side as a real boy. And I actually think that a lot of these deaths and this is where my worldview is very, very different from a lot of conspiracy theorists, because everything I have read in this literature leads me to believe that a lot of the deaths we see, like Bob Saget recently, um, you know, you can just go down the list of all these celebrities that died. It's actually their Pinocchio experience. They're, you know, they're going into the, the tannin, the whale, the Leviathan, and they're coming out the other end. They, they're literally going into death and they're coming out a resurrected new person. Now, we don't see the new person. They you know, they probably go off to some private island or whatever, but they are, it's their kind of their initiation into the next level of the becoming an ascended master. This is what Neo did in the first Matrix, where he died and then he became a watcher, became an ascended master at the very end. Um, and he literally had to go into the confines of death to, to do that. So this is what we see I, with a lot of these celebrities, I think with Julius Caesar, with, uh, with Nero. I, I don't, I, knowing what I do about the elites and how they function, I don't believe uh, I don't see any reason why uh, Cleopatra and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar were really off or suicided. I think that they it was all a 
a death, burial, and resurrection ceremony for the profane people in the stands to to uh, to watch, to put their belief in, and to react to in order for the psychodrama, the magic, to do its work. So hopefully nobody lost me in that. But Pinocchio is one of those stories that uh, that that they tell us the game plan and exactly how they function and how they do it. What you just said reminds me a lot of Atlas Shrugged and the Galt's Gulch, that you know land that nobody knows exists that they all go to when you know the time comes type deal. You know I've never I've never seen that movie, so I don't get that reference. But I assume that you're saying that in the movie they went off to like a private private land, right? Well, Ayn Rand's philosophy is that if you're not a producer, you're just a consumer. And uh, our idea was that communism is going to destroy the world where everybody just consumes and nobody produces. So they took all the producers and all the people who actually made things and, and were smart and figured things out and make society run. And they all left the society as a whole and went to a land that nobody else knew about. And they had their own little utopia out there. But they would like fake their deaths and stuff like that in order to get out there without anybody realizing they were all leaving. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I really, there, there's so many ways that they have a, um, this death burial resurrection ceremony. I mean, we've talked about this uh, in here about androgyny is one, just one, I, one way they do it. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm totally on board with that. Okay, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, fish. Oh, uh, Sarah said, what? You mean they're not really died? I'm not sure who you're asking who didn't really die. But yes, I believe that many of these... I need to get back into these hoaxes, guys. Because a, a lot of you have showed up here in the last year and stuff. Like, I've been just going over, like, Bible and stuff. But... If you guys, if, for those who know, know me from even two, three years ago, I was just going through like like writing about hoaxes. One of my favorite I ever wrote was where I believe that the, the John F. Kennedy assassination is a total hoax, never happened. I can I can show you why the the Sapruder film is a total hoax. It's not a real film. It's a composite imagery, which tells us that you can't use the film as proof that he died. And you furthermore can't, everyone there in the circle is a proven Freemason. You cannot use them as witnesses. And, and so that, that is another, you know, another example of a, of a ceremony that they did on the national uh, worldwide consciousness that somebody apparently died who, you know, um, who didn't. And so, yes, well, I don't. Okay, you said all celebrities. Everybody eventually dies, so people really do die. But there are times when there is something called psychodrama. Okay, psychodrama is real magic. Psychodrama goes back uh, to the Babylonian mysteries. It, it it goes back to you could see it. You could uh, talked about in the the Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. So this is real magic. So an idea of psychodrama is. It, this is actually a, a a really kind of bizarre form of therapy that some people will take where where the okay let me back up mk ultra is psychodrama all right so if if you understand someone is in, in the mk ultra program they don't know that they're mk ultra but what their handler will do is that they will they will split their psyche 
And in order to create this, this make this new creation, this this vessel that they can use in, in their slave, they will they will put them through a very traumatic experience that the that the MK Ultra individual has to survive and overcome. And they will set up a scenario where he has to defeat his own handler. If he can defeat his handler, he's actually uh, won. Um, and that the handler has won. And there was a great synopsis done on this on the Disney movie Return to Oz, where it's actually they're Disney's telling you in a very sickening way how they how they do this uh, this MK Ultra program. So uh, on a on a let's look at like at a national level something that's happened in the last couple of years. We have something called COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen is psychodrama uh, perfected on a worldwide and I'll say global scale and and so people are thrust into this situation in the media where the media lies to them and gives them this worldview that isn't real the people believe it and what they have to do is they have to survive it and people everywhere are so afraid of this invisible enemy and they're trying to survive it and if they can survive it that's you know they believe it they're living out this fantasy that they believe is real and that's where the magic comes in and does its work and starts molding people into the beast image this is what psychodrama is. It is it is actually performance witchcraft. And the thing about performance witchcraft, which I go back to time and time and again, guys, is that performance witchcraft has to be fake. It is performance. It's not real. They are faking something to get us to sign off on its reality. So we um, give them permission to be lied to, and then we, you know, act out these fantasies. You know, and we believe them to be real. This is why. Um, this began in Babylon. Babylon invented acting, guys. Actor, right? Actors, acting began in Babylon as witchcraft. And these these shamans, uh, they would act as spiritual shamans. They would get up on the stage and the, the, they, would get the, they would basically be the ones to open up the doors to the gods, to the people. And if they could get the people to laugh, to cry, to be afraid, to feel anxiousness or fear or, or you know, whatever – that is, they would have done their job, and that's the magic doing its work. So that's why when we say that all these elites running, you know, Zuckerberg, uh, Trump, it, name any of these guys, uh, Epstein, they're all actors. They're playing a role that is getting us to respond to what we perceive to be a reality, and then the magic does its work. That's psychodrama. We're all trying to survive something. So, anyways. I got one last quick question for you, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. it's about it's about the idea of peace. And when we look at Isaiah 2, Joel 3, Michael 4, um, there seems to come this time when their swords are beaten into plowshares. And I was wondering, is this something that's a millennial reign thing? Um, and also does the Pax Romana play into it at all? Because I just learned about this like 200 years of peace that Rome had, which seems to be the biggest span of peace that we've had since. Um, and I'm just curious your thoughts on just this general idea of peace and beating weapons into plowshares and when that happens. Well, okay, so maybe you'll have to explain that a little bit more to me. Um, I've actually been thinking, I actually want to get all the, the, the passages in Scripture I can on the kingdom of Messiah together in just the one document and then give a presentation on it to see what it looked like. And, and yes, I believe that there was, um, 
that uh, there was some war that ushered in the kingdom and that the 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 righteous the set apart the with the angels and everyone else helped messiah bring in this kingdom destroyed the enemy and then the the weapons were literally uh the swords the you know everything were put into the 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 haystacks and so on and so forth and when it talks about how like the hills would start dripping with wine and this kind of stuff the picture I see emerging is that if the earth was completely destroyed, like just, you know, fire, you know, raining down in fervent heats and just destroying and rearranging everything and, and reshaping mountains and plains and all this kind of stuff, which I think we see evidence for at the Milton cities and all that kind of stuff, that if the, the earth is scorched, that it would have been miraculous on Yahuwah's part to just bring about like, you know, like forest and all sorts of stuff again and, and have this stuff grow. That's kind of the picture I see emerging. And so, yes, I think that there was, there was, would have been peace on the earth. And, and the thing is, is that when you get into all this um, preterism, the reason I kind of step away from this is because preterists are always going to say, well, this is metaphorical. This is all metaphorical, uh, the whole millennial kingdom stuff. And I, 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 I'm not taking that position. I believe it physically happens, and which is something that the preterists cannot explain in their understanding of revelation fulfilled uh, that I have yet to see. I have yet to be satisfied on any of their explanations. So, well, what brings up this idea for me is um, someone was asking earlier in the night, I think it was before everything, before you even started reading, but it was the, uh, the idea of what's the practical difference between how we would live our lives. If the millennial kingdom had happened versus had it not happened. And I think this is one of those practical things that if, there was a command to beat the swords and the plowshares, then we should still be doing that, I think. If the only thing at the end when they surround the camp of the saints and fire comes down and consumes them, you know, they don't actually fight at that time. It's Yah fighting for them after that time. So I'm wondering, um, you know, I just see Christians in general are all about, you know, guns and weapons, protect this, protect that. And I get the sentiment, but I wonder if maybe it's a little misguided if the millennial reign did happen. Okay, so what you just brought up is um, is a discussion that will obviously divide this group really quickly, and I will give my two cents on this. And what, what the reason I say that is that I am not telling anybody what to do or not to do on this issue. I am not coming down on anybody who is a gun owner. And here I am saying this. I've said this publicly. You know, I'm sure my FBI agent Kevin or Carl or whoever knows you know exactly my position and. But I, um, I am, I, I myself, my wife and I, we have, we do not carry weapons with us, and we have gone all over the world, on you know different continents, and we have not lived in any fear. This is something that I will say that people who are really big on owning weapons don't understand. That we know that Yah has His total protection over us. And I'm talking, I have, I have seen what I believe are angels that have literally jumped in front of me to stop people. And so we go about, um, you know, we, we, we take Messiah's command to pick up our cross and follow after him. When I, when I think of picking up my cross, that I am not, I am not you know, putting on grenades, strapping them, and, you know, all these different, like, you know, a rocket launcher, and all, like, you know, M16 and stuff. like. I'm, I'm literally going to my persecution if it leads to that. 
but I have seen in my life his total protection of me. And uh, so anyways, that being said, I am not telling anybody what to do or not to do and how they feel led on the subject, uh, because that's something that everyone has to take to y'all personally and, and figure out. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just, that that's me. So my, my whole thing is, go ahead. Last time I checked in the spiritual battle, um, rockets and bullets, I don't think, uh, matter. One of what's what I find interesting is Satan was released. If we're truly in the time that we think we're in, Satan was released, and he was only given the authority to deceive. It says he set, he set out to deceive the nations. So that's the only power he has is to deceive. So once you're awake to his deception, you realize it, you can see it, then he no longer has any power over you, and he can't do anything to you. And right, the ultimate um, is to rebuke him in Yahusha's name. That's how you ultimately defeat the enemy. You call on the Father, and you call on the Son. Ultimately, yeah, and- that's what you need to defeat them. So there we are again. It's just like, yeah, even if you had a gun, even if you think somehow you can pray them away, but again, you're praying in whose name? You know what's interesting about the, the book of Jasher is that what you don't get a sense of in the book of Exodus when it talks about um, the, the children of Israel coming out of slavery is that according to Jasher, the Levites were never slaves. The Levites never allowed themselves to go into slavery. They saw that the Israelites were selling themselves into slavery. They were allowing themselves, the Egyptians, to slowly pull them in. And I find that really fascinating because... We live in a so we can look back at our history of the last 200 years and we can see generation after generation slowly selling their children into slavery. One of the big pushes was like, say, in the 1920s, 1930s, when the government was actually encouraging, they were, you know, basically, I, I think it was like giving them money. They were, they were encouraging parents to, to sell their children into like give them social security numbers. And there was, you know, some pushback. We don't really get all the pushback in history. They don't tell us about that. But for the most part, they won, right? Because I think probably every single one in this room probably has a social security number that we were given when we were children. And the thing is, is that uh, what you said, John, is absolutely true. That there, come, like, there is something about this system, the way it's set up post-mud flood, where I think Satan had to set it up uh, to give everyone an out. Like Everybody has an out. It, it, we saw this with the uh, with the vaccines. Everybody has an out. Most people didn't think they did. A lot of people fell into this idea that they had to get it because they saw no other option. But a lot of us who saw the deception saw that we had like no one was putting a gun to our head. We all had an out, and it's like that with the with the government, with you know the laws and all all sorts of stuff. You know, and we would talk about the the laws of the land versus the maritime laws, so on and so forth, and. It's set up in such a way that everybody has a choice to walk off the plantation if we want. I think that's amazing. And yet Satan is here. He, he gives us the out, but he's here just to lie to us and make it seem like it's impossible. It can't be done. Um, you know, he wants to sell you on the fact that you really do want to be a slave. You know, you want entertainment in the barracoon, as I'm always you know, talking about in my writings. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and my just you know, I'd be curious to see what the Hebrew says when we get to Revelation twenty. But, but my 
you know, there's there's different ways to interpret, you know, when it says and the the fire um, came down from from Yah out of heaven and consumed them. And some there's there's some verses says some translation says devoured, but there's there's different ways you can interpret that. It could be a literal fire that's coming down and burning them up, or it could be the consuming fire of the Ruach Hakodesh, right? So I think I think it it's going to be the consuming fire of the Ruach because it would kind of be a win for Satan. If he can go down and bring a whole bunch of people with him, everyone he's deceived, if he can bring them all with him, that's a win for him, right? But it would be true and ultimate defeat if he is destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire, and he's going in there alone, and all the people he had deceived had been woken up by the Ruach HaKadosh and had turned from him, from the deceiver, and turned to worship and obey and follow the one true Elohim. Yeah, that could be. I I do think though that there's something to be said about physical fire and physical water, right? Like we believe when the when the world was destroyed by flood that it wasn't a metaphorical water, a spiritual water. Yeah. Um, that and so there's something about, and this is why I, I, there's you know a lot of evidence that the earth was cleansed with fire before us, and and I I use the word cleanse, right? That that Yah is holy, Yahusha is holy, and of course. Um, Yahuwah, the Father, is is holy, and this is the reason why um, uh, I think that, yeah, like New Jerusalem's not coming down until the earth is physically, I think it will be physically cleansed by fire, because it, it has to just destroy the, the the evil, the stain, the unclean stuff uh, before it can ever touch ground. But yeah, I, I know, I think that the, there's a... I agree 100%. The context, though, in that verse is those who were deceived, the armies... Um, who marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Right. I think after that, there will be a cleansing of fire, um, you know, because it, it says there, you know, it talks about the the new uh, the, um, the great white throne judgment. And then it, um, it says, and then I saw a new heaven and new earth. So I think between kind of that, that moment when Satan and death are cast in like a fire, the great white throne judgment, I think it, then there will be a, a literal consuming fire of the earth that yeah you know it's interesting the um and i i I understand i'm going outside of canon at this point but the book of the two pearls is really interesting because well of course it literally says that satan is released from prison after the millennial reign and then he uh goes about to see the world and that he is the whole earth is destroyed by fire and then new jerusalem comes out it straight out says it but um what what's interesting is that According to the book of the two pearls, nobody here is getting out alive. Everybody dies. I'm just throwing this out there. I'm not saying that this is, you know, legit. The book of the two pearls is really interesting. And it says that because this cleansing fire is coming down, this fire from heaven, it's taken everybody out, including the saints, the set apart. Everybody. And it says that the that this, goes with new body. Well, it says that the set apart are going into what's called a holy rest. That we are literally going night night. He's putting us down, uh, so it says that we do not feel the pain of the fire. So it looks like everybody's going through this fire. Like nobody's getting out of this, according to the Book of the Two Pearls. Um, that the whole earth, like everyone in the earth, is getting consumed. But he's going to protect those who love him by, you know, 
go and that might be a part of the resurrection as well but it says that we get put night night and then we wake up uh when new jerusalem has has come down so yeah that that kind of that actually fits with um you know i'm i'm kind of probably out there on on i'm i'm uh Calvin, um, a, un- a Calvinist universe, I'm um, a universalist Calvinist is what I describe it as, where, because there's, there's verses that talk about a baptism of fire, right? So I, I, I think that the way I, the way I've kind of come to after lots of study, I think that, that um, there are the elect who are saved from the fire, and then there's everyone else who will be saved out of the fire, but they still go through it. Yeah. Because, because you know, it, it does say that Yah wills that none should perish; all should come to repentance. And so, it's, you know, I, I argue that he will get what he wills. So it's almost like there's the cleansing fire, and then there's the all-consuming fire, which is the lake of fire. Yes, yeah. There's yeah the lake of fire that destroys both the body and the soul, and completely extinguishes it. And that's that's it. You can't ever get it back. That's the that's the ultimate curse. Um, you know, being extinguished forever. I, I mean, I don't know if there's like a I don't know if there's an analogy for this, like with computers, like if you can wipe something clean, you can't ever get it back, uh, like a program or something like that. But it's it's the same equivalent. And as and. As it well, Heidi and uh, Lisa are having a conversation down here, but this is how what Heidi just said it was kind of not what I'm saying, but she said exactly they made their choice as well. And this is the thing that people choose the blessing or the curse. I've uh, when I when I went away from eternal torment, I used to I, I used to feel like I needed to plead with everybody all the time. And I, I don't do that anymore. I mean, I lay my case out there. I don't argue with people. No, people know where I stand. And I generally find with people is that either it's true. They either want the blessing or the curse. They choose it. Everyone chooses it. Everyone has that right. Um, and at the end of the day, when people be like, you know what, I don't, I don't want that. They, they they may convince themselves in their mind, but they don't live a life that says that they want that eternal inheritance. They really don't want it. They don't. They, they're not really interested in Yah's character, who He truly is, which is set apart from the world. And so they they choose the curse and they get their inheritance on this earth, and then they're done away with. That's it. They're done. It's kind of like animals that you know. If you've ever had a, a, a an animal you really like, like cattle or a, a sheep or a dog or a cat, and they die, and that's it. They're dead. They're never coming back. And uh, that, so that's kind of how I feel about most of the people on this earth, that that's what they decide, and they don't want it. And that's why eventually, once death is done away with, all the tears will be wiped from our eyes. The memory of them will be no more, and we're going to go on into eternity with those who chose it. And of course, that's my hope. I'm not saying that I'm going to make it into eternity. That's my hope that I um, continually uh, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And um, I hope all of us here in this room do that as well. Lisa, you say your pets are going to be in heaven, huh? Don't know how it will be heaven if they're not. Are these are these clean or unclean animals that you have? I'm not eating them. 
They're cats and dogs. They're not. Right. Yeah. I'm just not. I wasn't insinuating. I wasn't. I wasn't insinuating that you were eating unclean animals or. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you know, a lion is an unclean animal, and you see. I'll go there, Mandela effect. I mean, you see a lion and a lamb laying together. So um, obviously, yeah, they're, they're, I, I always wonder, though, about that passage in Revelation where it says that, you know, outside the gates of New Jerusalem will be the dogs. And it, it uses dogs right there with, um, with like sorcerers and others. Like it's an unclean animal that will not be allowed in New Jerusalem. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what I mean, that's that going to be. That was a metaphor for, for people that were like dogs. But like you said, I mean, if there's going to be supposedly lion and the lamb laying down together, or the wolf and the lamb, depending on what version you have. Well, um, you know, all I versions. I think he's going to recreate all the animals. And all... I've always, uh, every time one of my pets die, I go, "Well, he's waiting for me in heaven." <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I've had, I've had um, dogs my entire life. Now, I haven't had dogs since my my children have been alive, but. My wife and I have had good dogs, and we had a very evil dog. And this dog was probably—I'm not being lighthearted here—like he was probably demon possessed. I mean, this was an evil, evil dog, and you could look in his eyes and just evil. And I don't think that dog's making it to heaven. So I had—I had, you know, a, a black lab that was the most angelic, amazing. This 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 Labrador was the best dog ever. I could I could be like setting food down on the carpet on the floor and I could leave the room. That dog would sit right there and never ever ever touch it. And there was one time when she was a couple years old, we walked in the house, we walked back home and she was in the corner with her head down and her ears back and she did something really naughty and we could never figure it out and she was punishing herself. And she was sitting there and we we're like, "What did you do?" And she wouldn't look at us, and and so we never figured that out. The only naughty thing this dog ever did that we found out was, like in her last year of life, and I th I think she was just like you know like screw it, like I'm old, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna do this. I had like a loaf of sourdough bread there on the table, um, and I was sitting down with my dog. We were watching TV, and I said, hey, I have to go use the, use the bathroom, and I get up and use the bathroom, and I come back, and my loaf of bread is gone. And my dog is just sitting there, and she didn't. She didn't look guilty. She just sat, and I. She just sat there. Her ears weren't back, and I. And I looked at her. I said, "What happened to my bread?" And she was like, "No, I don't know. I'm just said I don't know. I didn't see anything, you know." And it was just. It was like no guilt, remorse, anything. I couldn't believe that. But um, other than that, she was a total angel. So I won't hold that against her. I think if you've trained them and you give them the actual command not to touch it, they won't touch it. But if you just walk out of the room, it's fair game. <laughs> right, but she always waited for invites. Like I could, like, I'm telling you, like I could. Um, um, my other dog, the demon dog, was a. It was the most beautiful dog ever. It was a Walker Coonhound. Um, I believe that Walt Disney actually based Goofy off of a Walker Coonhound, and I've seen evidence of this. Uh, they're huge huge uh they look like a, a mix between a beagle and a giraffe they're gigantic they're almost like almost like great danes in size and they could you know rest their head on a on a table and eat off a table off a plate and um and this one day i walked home oh so we would put this dog in like a crate and like 
tie it all up and stuff. And this dog would be like Houdini and get out. But the dog was so um, just wanted to show us how much it, it it how it felt about us putting us in this crate. Was it would you know just be standing there outside the crate, just staring at us like I can get out. And there's nothing you can do about it. And one day we got home. And I had been shopping at Costco. This is like, you know, 15 years ago. I was shopping at Costco, and so I had all these cereal boxes. I don't eat cereal anymore, but I come home, and I see a shredded cereal box by the front door. I'm like, what the? And then I start walking, and I see a second shredded cereal box. And I keep walking, and there's like a third shredded cereal box. Oh, yeah, that's it right there, Heidi. That, that, that. He looked exactly like that. His ears were a little longer, though, but he was the tricolored white with the black big black stripe a uh, big black spot and then the the brown uh tan face anyways um and i i'm counting i finally count 10 cereal boxes i follow this trail through the house and finally he is laying down on the ground with the last cereal box he had just ripped it open and like the, the it was all like the the cereals and stuff were all over the floor and he just he was his his belly was huge like he could barely breathe he's like <gasps> Like, because he had just, he had, he was determined to eat every box of cereal that he could just to spite us. And he looked up at me and he's like, what are you going to do about it? And then he just laid back down. Like, you know, he couldn't breathe. And, um, yeah, that was that dog. He, so he saved you from that poisonous cereal. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess a I knew good dog. Cow, I knew this cow in India. We called him chaos. And. Over the years, his horns got bigger, and you had to keep an eye on him when he showed up on the beach. If you turned your back on chaos, yeah, he'd either rub his horn into you or take whatever you had in your hands, steal, just take whatever from your food. If you had a book, your bag, that was chaos. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> tourists would come, people who didn't know this cow. It was quite a show every day because the cows would come um, cruising at the beach a couple times a day, early in the morning and then um, sunset time or later afternoon. And sure enough, you, you'd hear people like all of a sudden start, you know, you'd see people start trying to hit this cow and we'd be like, up, oh, chaos got somebody again. As he got older, it's like don't, don't. He'll come after you. He he ain't got no fear. He took your stuff. You know he's a big he's a big bull now. And this went on for many years, man. Quite the show. Thought I used to think, what what what's up with this cow? This this ain't right. <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm. Every now and then, you get. Like 99.99% of bulls out there are mean and nasty, and you don't want to be on the same side of the fence as them. But we had this one who was like Ferdinand the bull. He was definitely like Ferdinand the bull. And the no matter, he never got mean. I mean, we would we would always walk up to him, pet him. We would put like gloves on his ears and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, but one in a million, I think. Well, guys, um, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. And hey, can I yeah. just ask one question? I'm sorry. Yeah, please. Completely, completely off topic, but I've been needing to ask this of the women who are still listening. 
Do all of you ladies wear seat seats? I don't, but I wear a head covering. Okay. Thank you for answering. <laughs> Do My any daughter and I just started today. So we we made our seat seats yesterday and began wearing them today. <laughs> okay. I have been really struggling. Um I've been I came to Torah almost five years ago and I'm the only girl, I think, in the entire Portland area <laughs> who's following Torah. And I don't ever see any women ever wearing them. And so I got really self-conscious of them and thought, well, maybe I'll wear them under my clothes. But I feel like I'm really proud in my heart that I'm supposed to be doing this, so I better be doing it. You know, a good person to ask about that is is Pam, and she's not here right now. Because I was in a discussion with her on that, on the idea of, you know, like the verbiage of sons of Israel or children of Israel and, and, you know, when women are included in that and stuff. And I think her consensus is, is that it's, it's addressing all the children of Israel, men and women. Right. And that, that's something to take up. And yeah. I don't just, you know, as a, as the head of my household, you know, my family is Torah observant, but I don't, there are things that. I've never pushed on, um, you know, I, I, I don't enforce and, and, and tassels are one of them with my wife. Like it, that's up to her for her conscious. Her conscious is that uh, she doesn't believe it's addressing women. So that's, that's something for her to continually work out and, you know, whatever she decides based on scripture. I mean, she has shown me to be a woman of Yah to, if the Bible says it, she does it. And and so, but that's where she's at. And I know that, yeah, it, women probably here are probably all over the board on that. And I've, I've seen a lot of women in camp tour that wear them and a lot that don't. So, and it seems like, all, it, it seems like pretty much like, you know, it's pretty even with the men, like, you know, the, the men, I, I rarely see a guy who identifies as being tour observant that doesn't, I don't see tassels on them. Right. But the women, it's like 50, 50. Yeah. Right. Okay. Hey, Great. you're well, you're really you. close to us. We're in Eastern Oregon right now, except for we're driving to Missouri on Tuesday. But um, I have all the stuff to make mine, and as soon as we move out of my dad's house, um, I'm planning to wear them. And I went back and forth too, looking at the verbiage like Nola saying, and um, I just felt like the personal conviction. So I think it's that too. Like if you feel it, like some women, same with the head coverings, right? And um, I saw James wearing his and I was like, it just made me feel so like happy to see those. And I'm like, okay, I want that. And I want my daughters when they're old enough to understand to wear them too. And so I'm really excited to, I got all the stuff to make it. So I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> oh, great. Good for you. <laughs> That's great. Well, I didn't mean to just jump in here, but I've been just dying to ask that one question of you all. So thank you for your time. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be misunderstood in this um, because I can't stand it when people tell me, "Oh, it's a heart issue." Yeah, you know, God knows my heart. You know, they'll always say that, like for you know, when they don't have to be dis, they don't have to be obedient because God knows my heart. It's like, yeah, He does know your heart. You don't want to be obedient, right? But in the same in the in the same context, 
it actually really is a hard issue. And this is where I think when we get into some of these debates within Torah about the calendar is a big one. And there are, I don't know, a hundred different views on the calendar. That's probably a little overdramatic, but there are many, many different views. Even when you divide it by the seventh day versus the lunar solar, then you get into the different sizes of the moons and what day and blah, blah, you know, when, when the, what, what constitutes a day or a night and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, because everyone is so divided on this, I really do believe some of this. I really do. And I could be totally wrong. I don't leave, lead anyone into sin. But I really think that this is one of those heart issues. I think that in some instances, Yah wants us to live in this tension of not knowing, hmm. but, to, but to seek truth and to, and, and to go with what we see with our convictions are in Scripture. And I think he's looking at us and he's saying, what, what, you know, what is going on with their hearts? You know, what is, you know, how are they being led of this? Are they justifying things? Are they, are they changing you know, their beliefs just for their comforts or, you know, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And that's really what it comes down to. And I, because I know so many people are concerned, like if you, someone's lunar solar and someone's seventh day, that one of them are in sin and they're outside the covenant and all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't know if that's really, I don't know if that's really accurate. You know, I, I don't really see it that way. I think that if, I mean, if you talk to anybody, like even Christians get it that like Rome changed the Sabbath to Sunday, like they get it. Like, that's not like a huge conspiracy. Like everybody knows that and they, they don't care. They're like, I don't care if Rome changes. I'm keeping my Sunday because I, I don't want to keep the Sabbath. Right. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is that when someone comes into the seventh day Sabbath, then you got the, you know, the, the, the solar lunar people, whoever solar lunar in this room to kind of nab them and say, oh no, those Sabbath keepers, those they're wrong, you know? And it's like, oh, man, this is just where, where it all, so the same thing with the tassels, it just really comes down to your conviction and your heart and, um, you know, wanting to be obedient and, and whether or not you think that, you know, women are supposed to wear them, that's up to you. So, um. My personal conviction is that I think I think it is addressing women. That's that's my personal conviction. Now, Lisa in here mm-hmm. said Lisa in here said that um um I don't know, Lisa, do you want to talk about that or address that? Uh, she said, I believe the uh Zitset ordinance came from the Golden Calf breach, which you know it's obviously contextually there, and it's part of the book of the law, not the book of the covenant. Yeah, um it just I guess it just depends on, on how you um do or do not, you know, separate the timing when everything happened. So the command for the ZC came after, whatever that was. It came after, it it came after the the dude picked up the stick. Unmuted and it's really loud. Yeah. So yeah, after he broke the Sabbath commandment and they were in the desert, and so he ordered them to wear seats so that they would remember to keep the law. So, being that that was part of the, you know, after the Golden Calf Breach, and it was part of an ordinance that was added because of their transgressions, um, my own personal understanding and belief at this point is that we are now given the Holy Spirit as the prompter to remind us to keep the set, to keep the laws. But I don't think there's anything wrong at all for wearing them as a witness to others it's work it's been an awesome witness people you know recognize each other for wearing them um i just 
see them in a different way. So I posted that picture of the Native American dress, which I think is a sign and a mark that they were Hebrews because they put fringes on their clothing. And I believe the true um, translation of that verse is that they were to put fringes along the all the hems. When it says corners, that word literally means the, the furthest extremity or the edge or the hem. So... It, to me, I, I just felt, yeah, gave me this insight as far as I'm just picturing it in my mind if, if the, all the believers were walking around with these, um, with these clothes with literal fringes on every edge. It's almost like a physical uh, depiction of a, um, what a spiritual body would be emanating like a frequency. Does that make sense? So I don't know. It was just something that I visualized for myself. And... So, you know, I don't have anything. I If I had some and I could have the right kind of clothing to attach them to, I've attempted to wear them. It doesn't feel right for me. I, I bought a few outfits with the um, fringe around the bottom, and I wear them for certain occasions. But I, I don't feel called. I've felt called to cover my hair, my head. That's what I've felt called to do. And so, but, you know each their own and everybody learns how they how they understand it and i think it's a blessing as far as uh, witnessing and being able to recognize a brother or sister and all that too i consider my tassels angel wings and when i go out to like going through this crisis uh this ridiculous stupid crisis but you know when i go to grocery stores and everyone's masked up and i have not worn one and and everyone's staring at me, man. I put, a, I, I, I pull those tassels out. I let everyone see it, and those are my my angel wings. And I, I, I see them as you know, just I, I've there's been a like a shield of protection around me. Um, but when it comes to testimonies or testifying to people, I have found that they have not been, I guess, a witness that people have actually come and asked me about them. What what drives people to come up and talk to me is if I wear Hebrew. Like if I, you know, like everyone has, people will mock Torah because they'll call it t-shirt. You know, it's like they just wear t-shirts and stuff. But there's something about that. Like people will advertise their gods on their t-shirts. People use their shirts as billboards for their worldviews or beliefs, you know, like NASA, Star Wars, Harry Potter, whatever it is, right? Just fill in the blank. So I'm like, well, you know what? If I'm going to use my t-shirt as a billboard to advertise anything, I'm going to advertise my Elohim. I'll put like Hebrew words, like wear, you know, shirts with Hebrew words, and I also wear um, a um, a bracelet that's leather that is uh, all Hebrew. And when I wear this, people come up and go, "Oh, Hebrew, that's awesome, dude!" You know, and they start asking me questions like, "Are you, you know, like, you know?" They start asking me, "What does that say?" and stuff. And I've gotten in more conversations from my like wearing like my leather bracelet than anything else. I get asked questions all the time about it, and so. Um, yeah, I, I love conversation starters, and I've been able to witness to many people about the gospel of you know what it is to be a child of Israel um, through that than anything else. Well, guys, I'm going to kind of um, turn in for the nights. Thank you, everyone, for coming here, tuning in, and it was it felt a little quieter tonight. A lot of uh, a lot of quiet people, and um, but anyways. Um, Looking forward to doing this again in a couple days on Sabbath, and we'll see you guys then. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.